Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. This episode of the URM Podcast is brought to you by URM Enhanced, our tier of premium content that's everything you need to know to deliver world-class mixes. The core of URM Enhanced is our library of fast tracks. Each one of the fast tracks is a video course that dives deep into a specific area of recording, mixing, or mastering in a level of insane detail that you're just not going to find anywhere else. A few of my personal favorites are drum tuning with Matt Brown, creating ambience with Forrester Savelle, and recording metal guitars with John Brown. You get instant access to over two dozen fast tracks. That's over 50 hours of content when you join URM Enhance, and we're always adding new ones, once per month, actually. URM Enhance members also get access to our Mix Rescue series where we open up one of your mixes, perform a little surgery, and explain what we're doing every step of the way. And last, but definitely not least, URM Enhanced members have the ability to book one-on-one Skype sessions with us and some of our friends. It's your chance to get a detailed mix crit, some career advice, or whatever else you want. To find out more or join URM Enhanced, just go to urm.academy and click the Get Enhanced link. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. I know it's been a minute since the last episode. I just needed a break after lots of podcasting, but I'm back. And uh, I'm going to be podcasting quite a bit in 2020. First episode back is with my friend Michael Montoya, a.k.a. Morgoth Beats, who I met in about 2014 when he was in a local hardcore deathcore band called Goliath, which I recorded. Since then, he has leveled up tremendously. He's now a producer, songwriter for artists such as Issues, Scarlord, Lil Xan, Polyphia, Juice World, Bones, Jonathan Davis, and even Sid Wilson from Slipknot. He plays guitar and wins a plague and is just winning. He's gone from being some cool kid in a band to doing some A-list shit. And I thought that you guys would would enjoy hearing from him. So without further ado, I give you Mike Montoya, aka Morgoth Beats. Michael Montoya, welcome to the URM podcast. I'm glad we're finally doing this. Thanks for being here. Yes, thank you, Al. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited because, well, I mean, we talked about this at NAMM. We kind of took over the dinner conversation for people who weren't there, which is all of you listening, basically. Uh, there were about 20 people at a dinner, and uh, Mike and I basically took over the conversation at the table. It was really, really nice to see you. Yeah, no, that was great. I hadn't seen you in a while, so it was super nice. It was, it was a fun dinner. Yeah, for sure. And it was, it was just cool to hear uh, how much you've leveled up in the past few years, because what's What's interesting to me about your career is that, you know, your band was the last band I ever recorded. And at that time, uh, and the band is Goliath for people who are wondering, uh, that that was like when I re- retired. And at that point in time, you were a dude in a local band. I mean, a, a hardworking local band, but just a dude in a local band uh, who I thought was cool. But uh, you were still working your way into the industry at that point. Um, that's right when I quit to do URM. And it, it seems like parallel to that, your career has really taken off to where you're 
doing stuff with A-listers and playing guitar for cool bands, writing for people, producing for different people across multiple genres. And it's it's a long stretch from being in a, I don't know, what do you want to call it, deathcore band, hardcore? Yeah, yeah we were like a, somewhere in between deathcore and hardcore. When you look back on that, would you have expected any of this to happen? Like if Michael Montoya from 2014 that was at my studio? Man, honestly, no. Well, initially, my goal was to make that band blow up. That band became like a stepping stone for me. And looking back at it, it was actually a really good uh, like life lesson that I was able to uh, learn. Because we, uh, you know, we had a, a merch thing going like we we made money like off the band like it was to the point where we were busy and touring and all that so i got to experience you know the grind as some people say and basically from that you know i was able to join winds of plague that band was pretty popular like popular enough to get me into a, a real band like a bigger band that signed and all that fun stuff and then just from there i you know made little calculated moves i guess that ended me up in bigger positions so uh, I definitely didn't expect it. I kind of wanted to try to make that band work the best I can, like everyone does, you know, starting a new project or whatever. But uh, what ended up happening, I think, was much better. And I, I'm really glad I did do that band and I went through all the fun stuff, you know, that bands who are just starting out touring and have to do everything on their own end up doing because if you don't go through that DIY experience, you don't appreciate like the bigger stuff quite as much. Like I wouldn't appreciate like touring in a bus and all that fun, that type of shit if I didn't tour in that tiny ass van. Well, it's kind of like getting the entry level position at the corporation, like the mail the mailroom job mm-hmm. in a way. Totally. When you guys came to my studio, I could tell you guys were a really hardworking band. I mean, the studio was in Florida, and you guys drove in a van all the way from California to Florida just to come record. So that to me was like, all right, Span works hard. And that's not a short drive. And so I was impressed by that. I also thought it was kind of stupid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was, I, I like, I, no offense or anything. No, I just, all, yeah. it, I was like, either these guys are really motivated or they're dumbasses. Cause like, why are they driving all the way from California? That's ridiculous. But at the same time, I was really impressed by it because at the same time on the other and it's like, wow, these guys really will do what it takes to make shit happen, which is the attitude you have to have. You have to be willing to do what other people won't do. And if you wanted to get that recording done, so you made the uh, you made the sacrifice. And so right there, I, I could tell that something was different about the people involved in the project. So I'm not surprised, honestly, by any of this. That's awesome. No, totally. I mean, yeah, we had to, you know, we booked our own tour across the country, which we, at that point, though, we had already, we had been doing that. Like, so it was just like, let's just book a tour. You know, we already know how to do that. Uh, So it worked out where, I mean, that project was cool. I'm still happy. I'm still proud of that. It was like Todd Jones from Nails was on, did guest vocals on it. That was one of my first times I started like trying to pull on like strings to get like really cool stuff to happen, you know, like use, uh, use the, the band as like a, a, a leverage point to, you know, build relationships and stuff like that. And, um, 
Yeah, that band was a good learning experience because now I know I know how to run like a merch line basically, and I know how to book a tour. Not that I ever want to do that ever again, but I know how to do it. Well, it's not necessarily that you need to book a tour, but you know how to put together something that requires lots of logistics. Like for instance, because I booked tours, I feel like booking uh, the URM Summit, booking Nail the Mix, more specifically the URM Summit, because it requires so many people's travel arrangements and everything. It was very, very second nature to me. I don't plan on ever booking a tour again, but having had that experience of grinding it out in a small band has taught me things that have resonated and just been useful to this day. I have some friends who got big on YouTube and now their band is doing quite well. They skipped a few levels and hey, I'm not talking down on them at all. Like how whatever it takes to get to your dream, you know, more power to you. I respect anybody who makes it work uh, in music because music's a tough gig. However, I will say that I feel like some of my friends who have gone straight from YouTube to playing to packed venues, you know, without really, really grinding in between, it's no knock on them at all. But I do feel like they have missed out on some valuable skill building. No, totally. I mean, I definitely think it's an easier path and probably a more desirable path. But at the end of the day, if you really want to learn the ins and outs of this and you really want to test yourself to see how bad you want it, which is kind of what the band did, it kind of taught me to to work smarter, not harder. Definitely learned a lot of lessons from it that I was able to apply with joining like Winds of Plague, you know, later on. And uh, that's kind of actually what stopped that band was like it was started making me realize how to think a few steps ahead, you know, like how one path can lead to multiple paths. And to, if you take a small opportunity here because of a potential outcome from that small opportunity, then, um, you know, those type of decisions are going to get you further than just like sticking gun ho to what you have, you know? So it was kind of like, do I keep doing my smaller band, which even though we have like label interests and all that type of stuff, or do I join like a bigger band with more opportunities? And that was kind of where that happened. And it was the same with like going into producing hip hop and stuff. Cause around the time, I think when, uh, when we recorded that, maybe a, a little earlier, I, I was when I started like really getting my feet wet with production and doing uh, like, hip-hop production I'm, talk I'm talking about. I recorded bands and all that kind of stuff before that, but doing different kinds of production and working on different kinds of music. And then that path led to a whole other thing to where now I, I have, a I worked on a platinum album and a number one album this year. So I would have never thought like it started from, you know, a smaller moshy band, which now I actually, even looking back at it, I think Goliath probably could have been pretty popular being with bands like Knock Loose and Burials and stuff like that. Really, that really moshy sound has almost dominated heavier music, you know, like deathcore bands and stuff like that aren't really the relevant thing anymore. Those beat down hardcore bands are. And that's kind of what we are doing. So when you're talking about thinking ahead a few steps, and uh, I do this too, something that I've taught myself how to do, and now it just kind of comes naturally to me. When you talk about that, how does it specifically relate to, you know, joining Winds of Plague? Like, how many steps ahead were you thinking? And what were those steps that you were trying to get to? 
Initially, I started working with the bass player, Andrew, uh, the old bass player. Of Winds of Plague. Yeah, I started working at his recording studio. Just like as an intern or assistant? Yeah, just like as an intern, basically. I was like, and then like a, to like being just an engineer at the studio. And I didn't really, at that time, I wasn't quite as smart with that sort of planning. But what happened was, because I, I did that, I never thought like, oh, one day this band's not gonna need a they're gonna need a guitar player and I'm gonna be the person to do it. It was just I just wanted to be around to surround myself with people doing what I wanted to do and just to kind of be a, a fly on the wall. Cause initially I was like, all I wanted to do, I was like, I wanna be in a, a metal band and I wanna be a metal guitar player and tour, like with all my favorite bands and all that kind of stuff. And that was kind of the cap of my my goal. Like maybe I'll be a producer who like records and stuff too, but I want to be in a band. And when the time came for them to actually find a new guitar player and stuff like that, I had already been working with the singer on a new like project. We were kind of doing a new, starting a new band. And essentially that just led to, yo, why don't you just play guitar for Winds of Plague instead of starting something new? So that was when I realized, oh, this one step became this next step. And then I just kind of started basing my life off that. Like, this person, you know, if I say I work with someone, I'm like, well, this person is close with this person. So maybe if I work with them, a potential outcome is I can work with the person I, I really want to work with, you know, mm -hmm. with artists or like singers or rappers or whatever. I uh, usually will work with the producer, whoever their main producer or so is, because I know like getting to the artists themselves is really hard to do. It's It's next to impossible unless you're close in their inner circle because me and my friend John who uh, is like my production partner record like all of Little Zan's music for example and I know how that infrastructure works is if anyone wants to give him music for him to hear and sing to or uh, rap to they kind of have to go through us because we're the people who play his music for him like nine times out of ten. The gatekeepers. Yeah so that's how everyone works. Like that's how every system with every artist works for the most part nowadays is that they're not really getting music from the A&Rs and stuff like that. If you can work with the person already next to them, like for example, since I play guitar, usually these producers don't. So I'll be like, hey, let me send you a bunch of riffs and like song ideas where I'll just write a whole song on guitar and uh, give it to them and then they'll make a track out of it and then that track, they'll play, if they like what they made, they show it to the artist and then you got a, you know, you got a real song there, like or a real placement there that will actually make you some money. And that was just kind of how I started making those like calculated decisions was educated guesses, basically, you know. Yeah, a lot of people ask me how to get past the local level with their productions, and I always tell them there's two ways really that I know. Of. Number one is a local band that you work with gets big and you get big together. That's really rare, though, and unlikely. I mean, it happens. We all know people that it happens to, but that's because we're in the business. So we know the lottery winners, basically. Like yeah. Andrew Wade with A Day to Remember, for instance, mm -hmm. or Joey Sturgis. You know, we know these guys because they're the ones who made it work and helped grow bands, but that's very few and far between. That's not normally how these things happen. I always say the other way is that you need to get around people who are working at the level you want to work at. Yeah. No matter how, like even if it's as a runner or 
an intern or whatever. You need to be around people who are working at the level you want to work at so that you become a part of that environment. Totally. Yeah, those people become your social circle. Uh, and if they like you and are impressed with you, eventually, you don't know when. It could be a year from now. It could be two years. It could be two weeks. You never know. But like being part of that environment is how you get those gigs. Totally is. And um, one thing too, that doesn't, for people like who might get discouraged, be like, oh man, I'm never going to be friends with like, you know, Joey Sturgis or, you know, whoever. Sometimes those people are your friends around you and you need to cultivate new artists like on your own. You need to take that leap because if you can enter in a social circle like that you want to be in, with already having credited, say like one of your friends is a really good singer or something like that and you want to be a producer or you want to, whatever you want to do, you know, if you want to, you know, be in a band or whatever, whatever it is, but you got to kind of surround yourself with talent that you believe in at an early stage too, because if you come to the table with, hey, look, like I helped produce this artist, like, and I worked with this artist really early on, and now, like, say a year later or so, they're a lot more popular. Then the bigger people will be like, "Oh, cool, you know, this person, you know, may may be onto something. Like, maybe, you know, I should hear what they have to say." Versus kind of going in cold with no real, uh, real examples of any of your work or anything that's worked for you. Like nowadays, for me, it's it's kind of funny because. I would have never thought that being a like a hip hop and like pop producer or whatever would get me a lot more gigs in metal. I thought the two two were gonna kind of remain similarly set are fairly separate worlds from each other. And now I get all kinds of stuff because of just the the times, I guess, and just like the molding of genres and like kind of the genreless mentality that you know is in music right now. So. Uh, you never know what's going to lead to what, or you never know when you can apply one thing from one skill set to another place. And uh, yeah, now I get to work with some of my favorite bands ever. Like I never would have thought I would have gotten to do that. And that was not because I start I joined a, a one of the big, like big deathcore bands, and it's not because I played metal guitar. It's because I learned a new genre of music and started working on a new genre of music. And lucky for me, I did it at a time when it was underground and cool, and then it became mainstream. So I was lucky to kind of ride that wave a little bit, you know, and I'm by no means the only person doing this. There's a lot of really sick people out there who are in this, like my peers at this, but that kind of stuff is important. You know, you, you don't want to be closed minded. You want to like be as mo- open minded as you possibly can, I think. And that's, that's just work, what's worked for me. I mean, some people make the same kind of music their whole lives, and that's great. And if, if you're successful at it, cool. But I don't know. Like, I would rather make as, I'd rather do like the Rick Rubin approach, you know, and make as many genres as you possibly can. I think it's dangerous to just do one thing, honestly. I think it's dangerous because what if that thing that you're doing, I don't want to say it goes out of style, but loses relevance. And it will. It will. <laughs> Nothing stays around forever in its current form, you know. So a lot of people are wondering about this. How did you make the transition into rap? Like, where does that even come from? 
And I I know that there's this whole scene where metal and rap are kind of crossing over with these new genres that kind of came out of nowhere. But how did this happen for you? How did how did you learn how to do it? How did you get in with those people? Like where where's it all from? Well, um, a lot of my friends, a lot of my best friends, uh, I'm part of a production group called the B Brigade, uh, are hip hop producers. And these are these are like my friends I went to like middle school and high school with, you know, and then other friends who I've met through them, you know, their world has always been like hip hop production. And I've always been a fan of hip hop because I grew up skateboarding. And so for me, like metal, punk, hardcore and hip hop have always been in like a similar place for me. Like, I, I mean, I wanted to be in a metal band because I was a guitar player, but I always liked the genre. I always loved uh, underground hip hop and like just, I've always just tried to like as much music as I can. Like I try and find the good in music before I find the bad. And I know a lot of people in metal world have some kind of up nose, like snotty opinion about stuff like this. But to me, I first started like playing guitar on my friend's beats because that's my skill set is guitar. That's like my strongest musical, uh, like, you know, that's my strongest musical contribution I could make. So I started playing guitar on my friends' beats, and then as I like was in sessions and stuff, and kind of just saw how they how they do do it. And at this point, I had been recording bands a lot, you know, having to learn to record live drums. I went to recording school, all that stuff. I was able just to be like, you know what, I can do this. I can make these myself and just make my own kind of thing. And lucky for me, uh, the scene that is now like the mainstream of hip hop with like emo rap and like trap metal and like the darker hip hop kind of stuff. Uh, you know, like people who I, I produce for like bones, uh, like juice world, stuff like that. That was underground at the moment. That wasn't what mainstream hip hop was. So it wasn't so hard to, to work with like an underground scene because we're actually like a pretty popular band in the world of like, you know, underground, like metal and hardcore at the time. And I was, uh, I got I to gotta shout out my friend Omen13, who's a pretty awesome underground hip-hop artist who's pretty popular. And uh, he was a kid who used to play in a, another hard, local hardcore band that used to open for us in like the IE in, for Goliath. Uh, this is pre-Winds of Plague. And that kid became a very like in-touch hip-hop artist who, you know, he lived with like people like Lil Peep and Ghost Mane. And, you know, he's really involved with that scene. So he sampled a Goliath song once and I found out about it. And obviously, you know, when I got the thing like, oh, someone sampled your music. And I was super excited about it because it was like this crazy mix of like metal, like it was and hip and hip hop. It was basically like a breakdown, but, you know, instead of uh, bass, it was 808s and like the trap drums and stuff. And I was like, this is such a sick blend. And he was like screaming like he was in a hardcore band. And you know, I kind of was just like, uh, it was kind of like, aha, like this is, uh, this is sick. Like I'm, I'm going to try and take this more seriously. So it just kind of snowballed, you know, I just kind of did that. And then people were excited about that and were like, oh, this sound is crazy, you know? And I was able just to work with him and then work with another artist and work with another artist. And then I kind of developed my own little, my own little sound, my own little like contribution to it. And people just started seeking me out after a few after I got started getting those bones placements, I really noticed like a change in my life where I was like, okay, this is 
like what I should be focusing on because I mean, deathcore is sick. Like I like it. Like metal sick, hardcore sick. And I never want to not make that kind of music because it's like who, who I am. But I was like, this is a new thing that has not existed before. And it almost reminds me of new metal. And if you could be at the start of a genre, you know, in hindsight, wouldn't you want to be? So I don't want to be the person being like, I don't know, I'm going to stick my nose up to what these, these dudes are doing because they're not playing instruments and it's not a band. I don't know. So I just kind of was excited to, to work on something that hasn't really been figured out yet. Something where it's like, it's kind of uncharted territory. So the limitations are, are much less. There's no, there's no real box built yet. You know, with like when you start a subgenre, a lot of people see that subgenre as only can exist in its like most infant form. And then every band <laughs> who, who like starts, tries to push the walls out a little bit, then gets called, oh, you're not this anymore. You're not that anymore. And I was just like, man, I'd rather be free of that and just be at the start of something and kind of like try and create the parameters like, you know, myself. The walls are pretty much set in metal and hardcore. Yeah, it's a real problem. I, I actually think that that's one of the reasons that the genres aren't bigger is because they're self-limiting. No, totally. Lots of times when a band goes outside the box, they lose the support yeah. of the scene. So it's a self-limiting scene. And I think like, I'm super interested in subgenres and stuff like that too. I'm not the kind of person who's like, don't call us a deathcore band. Don't call us a hardcore band. Don't call us whatever, you know, because that's this or that. I'm totally fine with labels. Like I, but what I'm not fine with is thinking that like a genre starts one way and it has to stay that way the whole time. Like the walls on it can't expand, for example, you know, like if we look at like what metalcore is now versus what it was when it started, metalcore is like the probably the largest umbrella sonically in, in metal music in general right now. Like it covers a really wide range of sound at this point. And uh, I think that might be because, you know, it purists and stuff haven't all the way ruined it. Maybe. That's because purists never accepted it in the first place. Yeah, exactly. It was free of that. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's kind of funny because even though like metal's not in like the most popular place it's ever been, that every every year I feel like I keep hearing breakdowns are gonna die. It's about to be over, you know. And then I every year since I've been a kid loving like hardcore music, thinking, Oh man, this is about to pop because all these blogs and stuff are saying it and they know what they're talking about never happens i don't think it's going anywhere i don't think so either i think it'll evolve but it ain't hopefully yeah i hope so yeah i've been hearing that since i was a kid too i've been hearing that metal's gonna die hardcore's gonna die it's not gonna die it fulfills a specific need for a specific group of people emotionally and no other styles of music really fulfill that need. Though I will say that these new, new like trap metal stuff, uh, those super heavy rap styles with like the metal imagery made by metalheads, it's a very interesting thing. Like it kind of has that same sort of anger that I feel metal has had over the years. Like it kind of, it, it, I feel like it is almost inhabiting that spot for today that certain types of metal inhabited in the past. I totally agree. And that was why I even like drew my interest in it and 
even being like early early to the the party on it like i was reached like its sonic potential yet i think it's still very early in its infancy and um a lot of the artists in it are really big i don't think metal people really understand the the size of the the artists we're talking about here like in terms of their numbers and stuff but i definitely think that uh i agree with you that it's it's cool because it's like a reinvention of it i think that one cool thing that I do really like about hip hop and that I really do uh, draws me to it, especially on the production end of things, is that essentially the genre is entirely based on drums and bass. And whatever the melody or top line over that is could be from anywhere. Like you could take a guitar riff from metal, you could take a saxophone solo from jazz, you could take a Whatever, you know, anything that is the mel- mel- going to be the main melody of your beat and you have some interesting genre genre fusion. So it's al- it's really easy to blend genres in, in this world. And I'm actually surprised that it didn't happen more. I mean, it's this is similar to me to what new metal was, except reversed instead of metal bands, you know, like Korn and stuff like that and uh, mixing hip hop influence into their metal band it's rappers and producers mixing metal into their like you know hip-hop music based on that comparison or that idea sounds to me like your guitar skills were exactly what some people needed if it's hip-hop bringing in metal elements and you're saying here i can contribute some heavy ass guitars to your beats yeah that's fulfilling a need well, to me, I saw the scene kind of going this way because hip hop was getting darker and darker, and the 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 imagery of metal came first. And like the kids, being kids who grew up on metal and starting to make hip hop, because to be honest, it's a lot easier to to start a solo career if you're a vocalist nowadays, and you don't have to have a band because you can just get beats and you can just be a vocalist over those band, over those beats. So, um, yeah, I kind of was like, okay, cool. Like this is, this is happening whether people like it or not. And it's been a gradual thing. So it kind of went from kids being from metal world, but you know, they kind of make hip hop music and, but they implement some of the occult imagery and the edginess or the darkness of, of it. And then that, sort of interest in the aesthetics turned to Sonic, you know, and eventually it was like, oh, let's scream over this like dark trap beat, like we're in a hardcore band. And then when that started happening, I was like, okay, because screaming, or at least the type of screaming we're talking about comes from metal and hardcore, you know, like specifically, like no other genre can claim that, that thing. So when that started happening, it was like, oh, okay, so the sky's the limit on this really. Like we can basically just make, these genre fusions in a million different ways, you know, it could go so many different directions. And I was just like, sweet, I'm going to take what I do and, you know, play, play riffs and just make, change the drums. I mean, it's not a crazy concept or idea or anything that is impossible to do. You just have to, to learn how to, the best parts of each genre and learn how to put it together, you know? Um, that was kind of been my mission state with it. And, you know, working with, with really open-minded bands and stuff like that too, like Issues, you know, who is just the most genre-blending band I know. 
it really helped me open my eyes to the potential of, you know, envisioning a sound that doesn't exist yet and trying to create that sound. I kind of asked myself, what do I wish something sounded like that doesn't exist yet? And can I make that or can I come close to approaching that? Or who can I collaborate with to create said sound, you know? Like with, like with issues, it's kind of like, to put it like very basically, it's like, what if uh, R&B, neo-soul, funk and stuff was mixed with like modern progressive metal music, you know? And all sorts of other little elements in there. And that's what they were able to create. And very authentically too. Yeah. Well, that is definitely because of their musicianship and their background in music and being a multi-genre players. So let me ask you something, because this is very fascinating to me. You have a, a vision. And by the way, I think that vision and intentionality is the most important thing any creator, whether you're a lead guitarist, a painter, producer, songwriter, businessman, it doesn't matter. Like having a vision is everything. So, all right. So you have your vision it's for the sound that doesn't exist yet. So you don't necessarily have a reference because the sound doesn't exist yet. What's the first step in making that a reality? How do you even define it if it doesn't exist yet? I think you have to look at your favorite parts from what you're trying to create from. Actually, a really cool lesson I learned, I used to get guitar lessons from Mark from Suicide Silence, like long time ago, like almost 10 years ago now, or something like that, eight, nine. See the dude with the massive beard? Yes, that is Mark. Yeah, he's good beard. He told me the key to making a, a good original sounding band is not to mix two or three bands or four bands or whatever in playing the same style of music that you want to play if you just want to coexist in a subgenre. You know, so if it's like, I want to make a band that sounds like Chelsea Grin mixed with uh, Winds of Plague mixed with Suicide Silence. Well, you're going to get a band that sounds like that. You know, you're going to get a a basic deathcore band. And Mm -hmm. what you need to do is take like 20, 30 of your favorite kinds of music who aren't in the, necessarily in the same style and pick things about them that you like. Like really hyper-focus in on when you're listening to these these kinds of music. Or it doesn't have to be bands, you know, I'm just doing that blanket term, artists in general. So say you're like, I really like, you know, The Cure's lead guitar tone or something like that. And I really like Meshuggah's rhythm tone. And I really like uh, Earth, Wind & Fire's drum style. And I really like... Uh, the production that, uh, you know, Drake has or something like that. And, you know, just wild things like that. But if you hone in on small details and you figure out how to apply those small details, you can come out with something pretty cool. Like, it's not always going to work, and you're going to probably have to spend a lot of time working on specifics. But if you learn those styles of music you want to emulate and eventually it's just going to come out of you, you know? I agree completely. So like, I'm just, cause I used to do that too when I was writing. So there's this song Doth has called Double Tap Suicide. And by the way, just to clear anything up, we don't mean the guitar technique. <laughs> Double tap. Double tap. <laughs> just in case you fuck up yeah. the first time. Uh, but uh, no, because someone was like, is that a 
guitar technique and say, no, you idiot. <laughs> I mean, you shoot them twice. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember that one specifically. It was like, all right, I really want to combine clean parts that you would hear on like a Danzig record, like how the gods kill, mm-hmm. like old. But I want the energy of Joey Jordison on the first slip, not the way that he pushed and pulled tempos or that Slayer would do on some of their fills, pushing and pulling. But I also want the fluid motion of Morbid Angel, but I want the catchiness of a Slipknot chorus, but I want the beauty of uh, one of those Opeth parts that they play for like eight minutes straight. Oh yeah, I'm one of my favorite. Yeah, along with Flamenco. And it's got to be catchy as fuck. And it's one of people's favorite songs by us, but like it was, there's a few more things in there. There was like, we love it when Lama God go to these halftime parts. Right. So we're going to do something kind of like that too in there. And, uh, but there were parts like the chorus also was like, we love it when Man- Marilyn Manson gets these sing-alongs going. Uh, and so somehow put all that shit into one brutal ass song and you can't really pin down a genre on it. It just sounds like our band. The way that we nailed the Joey Jordison thing was by writing tempo changes uh, into the fills. Oh, okay. Because we figured out that the reason that first Slipknot sounds so energetic, you know, besides the vocals and all that, but like drum-wise specifically, was because Joey wasn't, playing to a click and his tempos are all over the place. Yeah. Um, but in a way that's really fucking musical. And we noticed that a lot of times he would speed up on fills like gradually, but towards the end of a fill, he'd be like 15 BPM faster than he started the fill. And then it would come into another part that's just like blazing fast. And people who were tracking everything to a click, uh, lost that i think um until the until people started changing clicks around like they do now a lot of metal bands lost that kind of frenetic energy so we're like we need it on grid because we want to make a modern recording but we still want to capture that energy so how how do you do it you just you write the fucking tempo changes not and not in the way of like the chorus is 2 bpm faster more like there's a ramp on this fill like yeah. It speeds up during this blast beat. No, totally. And it worked. And I've always thought that, I. and by the way, I completely, I'm just saying that I completely agree with that method. Like, if you want to have a complete, an original band, well, first, you need to acknowledge that you have your influences. Like, oh, yeah, 100%. Everyone is going to borrow from their influences. But you need to make sure that your influences are coming from lots and lots of places. And uh, the thing that I always encourage people, and producers too, like this is something that I always think is crucial for someone who wants to be a good mixer, a good producer, is to expand your tastes. Like, yeah. focus on becoming a great music listener and go far beyond your own genres. If your only influences are, like you said, Chelsea Grin, Suicide Silence, and uh, I don't know, you mentioned one other band. When's, when's a Plague, yeah. When's a Plague, okay, you're going to sound like the band that plays first of five on their tours. Exactly. They already did it first and they already did it better. And they're mixing bands together that 
aren't the bands you're mixing together. Correct. For Winds of Plague, we don't really care what our peers are doing because essentially we, I mean, you know, you want to have some form of awareness on what's like cool and what's not cool, but we are more interested in mixing. We know what our sound is. We know what like the audience wants and we know the kind of stuff we want and we know the ways we can grow. We know that kind of stuff. And if you can, if you can apply stuff from other places that you wouldn't expect, but you have to, you have to do it in a way that makes sense. You know, that's what I, what I'm saying with the like hyper focus on shit. One thing I learned, cause, uh, I'm afraid we're talking about this, but I've been working with Sid Wilson a lot from Slipknot. Which is badass. Thank you very much. People, we can already hear a collaboration of ours that we did. Uh, it's with my artist, uh, this girl who's a trap metal artist. Her name's Lucifina. And uh, she was in a metal band and she's kind of like my my project that uh, we make all our music together and stuff and it's fun. And Sid was really into it, so we made a song together and that song's out. But uh, really like kind of working with him and seeing how big a role he actually plays in the creative process of Slipknot and how much of a genre bending genius those dudes are like early on, I really realized I was like, wow, this Slipknot would not be nearly as interesting without Sid contributing all these crazy like drum and bass ideas and all these crazy like underground hip hop scratching techniques and all these weird industrial noises and stuff that are going on like and these crazy like classical piano parts, which is, Sid usually plays all those piano parts. Uh, and I was like, this one inclusion of this dude from outside of everyone else's influences really made that band super special, you know? And I don't think he really gets as much. People just kind of think that he's up there just, you know, people in metal already have a very wrong impression of what scratching is and how easy scratching they is. They sure do. Scratching is so hard to do. Like, I, I mean, I live with a uh, low file tie from, uh, you know, the turntablist and issues and he can, you know, cut someone's head off with scratching and Sid's like that too. So that is a very sick skill, but the amount of things you can do with soundscapes and interesting stuff like that is pretty wild. So, I was kind of learning a lot from him just being like, wow, if you really like try and create something that hasn't been done before, like let's throw a drum and bass part in this like section and slipknot, like, like surfacing has a good one or uh fit it out has a good one. And you really start to focus on those little details. They'll kind of blow by the average listener. But if you really stop and, uh, and this goes with like tons of bands, any of your favorite bands, if you start paying attention to the small things, how do they transition? Like, Where's the grooves coming from? Like, is this something that, you know, a lot of other bands are doing? Are a lot of other bands implementing this sort of influence into their music? And if not, you got to find things that make you original. Because even the mix a million genres together thing, I think some people really think they're doing it and they're not doing it. Well, they're like, oh, yeah, we're a, we're a deathcore band, so we're going to implement Morbid Angel and we'll have some Opeth here and there and we'll have some, you know... We're stepping outside the boundaries. It's like, you're still mixing metal. Mm -hmm. You got to like go outside of metal. That's the whole point. And when I'm saying like mix, mix something, I'm not saying, you know, rip it off exactly. I'm just saying, hey, like the drum groove in that Juice World song or whatever is super sick. Like what if I play that on real drums and it was over a riff that's kind of like this Pantera song or something like that. And that's kind of how, at least for me, that's kind of how I find uh, originality more so is in those kind of experiments is more outside the box stuff. And 
kind of even rethinking what you're willing to think of in terms of what kind of music you're making and what you have to do to get there. Sometimes maybe real drums aren't the answer. Sometimes maybe you should go all the way in the direction of make the drums sound electronic because there's something to that. And I know metalheads have a real issue with programming and stuff like that, but music isn't about like what you can play. It's about like what comes out the other end. And that's really all that matters. How, how it got there is almost not irrelevant, but it's, it's not the biggest part. It's the outcome that's the, the important thing. I completely, 100% agree with you. Kudos to anyone who's a really great player. I mean, you know, we all know that that takes a lot of work and years and years of dedication. But that in and of itself is not enough. Kind of like in a relationship, it's almost like love's not enough. You got to have all these other elements. Uh, I feel like in music, playing is not enough. It's just not because all all that means is you can create sound uh, with varying degrees of accuracy through an instrument, but that doesn't mean anything. It's irrelevant if it's not communicating a certain feeling and creating a sound that achieves a vision and whatever you got to do to achieve that vision, that's what matters. I think vision is everything. Yeah, totally. You got to be inspired. You got to be creative and look, get as good at whatever instrument you're into and you want as possible. Like, I mean, I, I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't spend the early part of my whole like music career, like disciplining myself in guitar and like production and stuff like that. You know, I, I wouldn't like if I didn't, get the fundamental stuff down. But I'm just saying it doesn't matter unless you know how to apply it. For example, like if you're a really good guitar player and you kind of say, say someone is at that point right now where they're like, okay, I'm really good at guitar now. I can play all these songs like from my favorite bands. I'm, I'm at a level to where I'm in the ballpark of, you know, of that. Then I'll be like, okay, then what's next? Like, how do you create your own voice? And I get a lot of people who ask me like, what should I do? You know, how do I, you know, work with, people and I play guitar, but you know, I don't make beats or anything. I'm like, okay, cool. Like I, I do this, even though I make beats on my own, like what I was saying earlier, if playing guitar is your strength, find people who need that strength and be open-minded to like, if you can create your own thing, like you can go on your computer and you can record a whole song on guitar. Say you do a whole song, like a riff, like leads, everything, and you give it to someone else whose strength, say, is drums, you know, or like drum programming, and that person then kills it on the programming, then you're going to kind of start to get something something to get excited about. You got to know where your weaknesses lie and where your strengths lie, and you got to be honest with yourself about that. Like, I think a lot of people just get to one point and just kind of like stop and go, well, now what, you know? I'm a big proponent of collaborating the, the fun thing about being a producer, I think, and and I know uh, it's kind of funny because hip-hop producer and, and rock producer almost have two different titles and functions, but um, is that you can collaborate with whoever and you don't have to stick to a particular sound. With a band, you kind of get into a place where you develop a sound, and unless you're really good at whatever you're going to evolve your sound to, it's going to be a lot tougher to sell people who are already fans of you on a new sound unless you can, you know, really sell it like bands like Bring Me and stuff like that. 
But yeah, I think that the fun thing about being a producer is, I mean, yeah, I have, I'm known for like making my blend of like alternative rock, emo, stuff like that. And like metal of all various forms mixed with modern hip hop influences. But I have music varying all forms of genres like EDM, like pop, uh, funk, like R&B. You know, I try and make these other things to strengthen my muscle at that. And if the opportunity ever comes up, I can utilize that. Uh, but yeah, as I'm just saying is like strengthen your musical muscles. Like if you're really good at metal guitar, like learn some R&B songs. Like if you're really good at, uh, you know, hip hop production, like try making a pop beat, try making a neo soul beat, you know, or just step outside your comfort zone. And then when you go back to your original thing, you have more tools to drive from. That's one thing that's helped me in hip hop is the metal thing is like I can pull influences. Everyone wants guitar beats nowadays. And I'm like, cool, I understand what good guitar playing is. And I understand what good riffs are. So I can, you know, take my influence from Opeth and all these other bands and give them to a, a, a producer. And they've probably never heard uh, riffs like that because it's just not in their world. So like the, the one genre thing definitely doesn't just apply to metal. It's, it's all over the place. But you can surprise people in a different world when you come to them with the coolest parts from your current world, you know? Absolutely. And that reminds me of something I heard Korn say early, early on. They said that they wanted to have a combination of all the cool parts of Morbid Angel and Sepultura without the guitar solos and the double bass. Yeah. So like, because they, yeah, they said that they loved it when death metal bands would just slow down and just be fucking heavy and like crushing and halftime. And when the, those slow sludgy riffs, yeah. Uh, so why not do a band that's all that? I love that. Yeah, that's my favorite. Forget the solos. Forget the blast beats. Yeah. Shout out Jonathan Davis too. That's been another like cool thing I've been getting to to work with him and really understand. Uh, yeah, that exact thing when you're talking about with Corn. Like I've definitely talked to him in depth a lot now about where did your influence come from? Like how did you create such an original voice and just like how did you create like this genre? You know, like. And basically, it's what we're talking about. It's very similar. It's just they loved all kinds of music, and they didn't just love that kind of music. They understood that kind of music. They understood funk. They understood soul, like oldies, hip-hop. Like, Jonathan Davis learned how to beatbox from being really into, like, obscure New York, like, beatbox scene, you know, that you would just never expect. But all that stuff isn't from nowhere. You know, he didn't just open his mouth and start, like... I'm going to beatbox on a corn song. Like that's from a very weird, specific influence he had from this small subculture. And I was like, okay, yeah, this like open-minded thing is really the ticket. Cause you can, they're a very, they're a very diverse band. They have like some of the heaviest stuff I've ever heard. And some of the, just the softest, like prettiest stuff. And that's always my favorite kind of music is, like them, you know, Slipknot is like that, Deftones is like that, like stuff that's very diverse. And when you pull through multiple, like a wide range of influences like that, that's like the only way you can achieve that kind of thing. And I understand when bands like, like a Cannibal Corpse or like what Slayer did and like Hatebreed and stuff, they kind of invented a sound. And, and they stuck to it. Yeah. But unless yeah. you invented the sound, that everyone is ripping off, <laughs> then you're just kind of in the lane that this other person created. Like if any new metal band is just kind of making new metal by the numbers, you're just kind of following what Korn and Slipknot and them already did. 
you're not really reinventing the wheel, even if the genre is a pretty wide sound, like, you know, a wide spectrum of sound, you're still copying, you know? Meshuggah is a great example of that band that created a style and have stuck it through. Yes. But they don't need to change. Like, they are who they are. They invented that shit. Speaking of Jonathan Davis, one of my favorite vocalists of all time, and definitely an A-lister, that is kind of what I meant at the beginning uh, when I was talking about going all the way from being in a local band to working with A-listers. Like, that is really, really impressive. Uh, how did you get to working with him? Like, how does... I know you're talking about uh, thinking a few steps ahead and getting in the right environment so that you're around people who are doing what it is you want to do. But I mean, that's pretty far up the ladder. How do you start to get to that level? Like we've been talking about working with Slipknot members and Horn members. Like that's it doesn't go much higher. No, yeah, it's crazy, man. <laughs> Another crazy thing is our our drummer for Winds of Plague is now in Lamb of God, and that has that's another thing where it's. All these bands I grew up loving, you know, all of a sudden I, I'm friends with them. But yeah, uh, the corn thing specifically. So when I joined Winds of Plague, me and my friend Davey joined it together as the guitar players. And Davey was friends with Head. And then Davey was able to join Korn as their keyboard player, as their live keyboard player. So I was just lucky enough to, you know, a good friend of mine got a great opportunity and has just won the lottery of life, basically. And Jonathan Davis, I met him. You know, he's so cool, so humble, the coolest guy. Honestly, just no, his ego is close to none. And I've been making music with uh, his son too, like pirate. He he wants to be like a rapper. He's really into a lot of the the darker kind of hip hop stuff. Um, that I work on. So my thinking, you know, thinking steps ahead, I was like, okay, cool. A pirate like sound is a cool kid. I like him a lot. He has a cool voice. So I wanted to work on music with him because, you know, he's probably a chip off the block, to be honest. So I was like, how, how could you not at least see? Like, and we started mm-hmm. making stuff that I'm, we're excited about. And through that, Jonathan, you know, was impressed with my production. So we started making some stuff together too. And, it just kind of worked its way out. Like I was able to um, basically just be like, okay, this situation can lead to this situation. And that's basically kind of what happens is you take an opportunity. And then when after you take that opportunity, uh, you kind of just stay open-minded to what can happen. And that's pretty pretty much that, man, honestly. It was pretty organic. Like I, I didn't like call him up, cold call him, punish him, any of that stuff. It's just kind of... <laughs> the shit doesn't work. No, it doesn't. You don't want to be seen to these people as that. You want to kind of come to them as like uh, having something to contribute, you know, like in their lives. And to me, it was like, hey, uh, and Jonathan's really well aware of the genre blending and hip hop and stuff. Like, how could you not be? Because basically it's, it's a similar thing as to what he did when he was a kid. So it's something he's excited about. And yeah, we just kind of hit it off, you know, so I just go up to his studio all the time in Bakersfield and just, you know, stay with him and we just work on music. And it's, it's, it's super sick because he has probably the only, I can honestly say one of the only people I've ever recorded with like a truly original voice was something like I will never hear a voice sound like sometimes everyone has their own voice to an extent, but no one sounds like this dude. <laughs> 
Like no one sings like him. No. Not like it's just insanely original. So yeah, uh, it was like that. That's similar too. Like I've been working with Travis Barker a lot too with, from Blink One Eight Two, and that was a that was a situation where I just kind of approached him and we work on same kind of music because Travis is of the same ilk of like being a very very open minded dude. A lot of the stuff I'm talking about, like in the kind of the lane I'm in with this world, Travis is dominating. It. How could he not? You know. He's Travis fucking Barker. One of the greats. Yeah. I just approached him and was like, hey man, like we both make this kind of music, you know, like talking to him and he, he knew a lot of the stuff I had done already. So I was able to make some beats with him and I just didn't shit the bed when, you know, the opportunity presented itself. And we made a, a bunch of tracks together. Uh, some cool stuff looks like it's it ha- it's going to happen with them. You know, I don't want to say specifically, uh, you know, to jinx it. So when you approached him you approached him with a track record and with him already knowing your work and with you guys having a similar direction exactly it wasn't just like out of the blue like well you're famous so i want to work with you yeah exactly that's not going to work you know if you want to work with some of these people you got to know what they're into and know what they're they're trying to do like with travis it was just kind of like hey you know like and i had a something to offer too where it was like I would love to make music with you. Like I'm, I'm making music with, you know, this person and that person. And it would be really cool if we can, you know, make, I know you haven't worked with them yet. Maybe, you know, we can get something together and we can work on something that, you know, is for this person or that person. And let's just make some music, see what happens. And, you know, it's, it's what happened. We made one song it led to, you know, two, three, four, five. And we just kept, we you know, just been pounding out tracks and it's been great. Like, I mean, I, man, Definitely the probably the best drummer I've ever met. Probably better than any metal drummer I've met. Nine times out of ten, to be honest with you. Like watching that him play metal. Like I know it's not everything everyone gets to experience all the time, but if you watch Travis play metal, he would be everyone's favorite prog death metal drummer, whatever. If he was in a band like, you know, who's who's like Didn't he audition for Slayer? I heard that. I have yeah, I heard that, that too. I, sh- I should I should ask him. I'm really curious to hear if that's true. And I heard that the only reason he didn't get it was because, not because he couldn't play it or anything, and not because they didn't like him, but just because it's Slayer. It's too weird for Slayer fans. They're like, oh, the drummer from Blake Blaney too, he can't do that. But that's crazy. Uh, that's what I heard. I don't know. I don't know the truth behind it, but I heard he auditioned and fucking nailed it. Yeah, he's... Dude, he's so good. Like he was, I was watching him do blast beats and stuff. I was like, like really, literally the cleanest blast I've ever heard in my life. I guess I couldn't even believe it. It's kind of funny because I think people in in metal kind of a lot of times have this elitist idea that like, oh, metal is the hardest type of music to play, and we we have a monopoly on the the best musicians in the world and stuff like that. When it's like, nah, it's not really true. It's it's, it's not. I think it's the hardest stuff to mix. Yeah, that's what I think is true. Not the best musicians in the world. No, and I, I think that it's uh, it's interesting when you come across like some like even like a lot of pop session players and stuff like that. Like, dude, if these dudes were in metal bands, they would be in the biggest metal bands in the world because these dudes are so fucking sick at music. But they're you know they're gonna make music for shit that charts and is like number one and stuff on Billboard. So you know you can't really be mad at it. No, those guys like the kind of dudes that would play in a Justin Timberlake's band or something, those are the best musicians. Oh, yeah. That's no joke. Like, no joke guitar players, no joke drummers, 
some of the best, yeah, definitely some of the best musicians I've met were from places I was I was surprised to see how good they were, you know. Yeah, it's actually uh it's really honestly not that many great musicians in metal. There's some for yeah. sure. We know we know some, but I do think that that whole idea that metal musicians are like the best or something like that, you know, that's a myth. Yeah, it's definitely a myth. It's a total total myth. Yeah, I agree. In fact, lots of them fucking suck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you being uh, producing for all the bands you have, I'm, no one knows more than you, you know? And not to say, like, there are some of the best musicians in metal, yeah, for sure. Like, I work with Polyphia a lot, you know? And mm -hmm. those dudes are fucking insane at their instruments. Like, Tim and Scott and, like, the Clays are just, God, dude. Like, it's... it's they're pretty young, right? They're, like, mid-20s. I would not be surprised if down the road when Polyphia is not a thing anymore to see one or more of those guys being one of those pop session types. Oh yeah. I mean, Tim's already doing similar stuff as me. You know, he's already, well, there you go. Yeah. He's already, he's already has his foot in the door working with, uh, with pop and hip hop artists and stuff like that. It's really like, to be honest, if you want a number one song nowadays, you want a platinum record and all that kind of stuff that people are going to be like, ah, oh, do it for the passion. I don't want any of that. After you get that, you kind of, you, you understand a little more, you know, it's not the reason you should create music and it's not any of that, but it's a cool feeling. Like when that Juice World album went number one and like it just went platinum recently. And like I, I produced a song on it with my, uh, my friend Perps, who's a sick producer. And it was like, oh, wow, like this is a, an achievement. Like this is something I have to chase, you know. First of all, congratulations on that. Thank you. Sir. And it's a hell of an achievement. Very few people can say that they achieved that. Yeah. And it was, Bet you never expected that one. No, I did not. Ex I, did, I didn't expect it. And that's why I think it happened. Was one thing I've, I've learned about myself is that it takes me more time sometimes to achieve things that I want. Like I want things right away, but usually it usually takes me a while. You know, like for example, with the, with the whole Winds of, joining Winds of Plague thing and all that stuff, it was like, oh, I wanted to be in a, a ginormous metal band right away. But who doesn't? But, you know, it takes a lot of work and it takes sometimes longer than you're going to expect. If you're the, the person who doesn't quit, something's going to happen. It's, it's the people who, who just quit and throw in the towel like 100%. That's, that's when nothing's going to happen for you. Like, well, there's, a, there's an opposite, though, because I'm sure you know that local band that's been around for 20 years Oh, and yeah. still play the same eight songs. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, so there's also knowing when you should quit. Yeah, or at least uh, at least knowing when you know there's no shame in like say you're like oh I gotta have this normal job or whatever. That doesn't mean you have to stop making music entirely. You can just if you're gonna be in that same local band for like 20 years, maybe it's time to like reimagine it, or maybe it's time to you know start a different start band. something different with a different vision. You know, that, that, that's not quitting. That's just, like, repositioning yourself. Like, for example, I could have been, like... You know, and Goliath stole my early songs, like, at some point. Like, I have fucking albums and albums full of songs with, from that band. But uh, if I would have just stubbornly stuck my heels in and been like, no, you know, like, this is my thing. I'm not going to sell out. blah -de blah blah Like fuck mainstream music. Like, I'm going to make mosh music or whatever. Like, that's just as ignorant, you know? And it's kind of, on the on the other side of it, selling out isn't, uh, like, because I've, I've been called a sellout before 
few times because they're like, you work with Little Xan, you work with Juice World, like, like these people, this is like garbage, you know, like how can someone from fucking Winds of Plague, you know, work with like these fucking like drug head SoundCloud rapper, like mumble rapper, whatever, you know? And it's like, dude, like if you can't understand why people like this kind of music, then you need to like reassess your taste. Like you have, even if you don't like certain music, you should understand why people like it, even if you don't like it. Does it bother you at all when you hear that kind of stuff? No, because I'm making what I want to make and selling out is making music that you don't want to make for money. And first off, that's got to be so hard to do. I cannot imagine right? having to make music from an uninspired place. I actually had this conversation with Devin Townsend uh, when he came on the podcast. We were talking about Chad Kroger. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about how lots of people don't get it, but that dude and that music is not sellout music because that is exactly who Chad Kroger is. And he's doing exactly the music that is natural to him. It just so happens that that music is huge. Like that same way that Devin Townsend is doing what's natural to him. Uh, and he's big in his own right. It, not Nickelback big, but Devin was talking about how every single time that he tried to do something more like Nickelback, like more like, you know, yeah, commercial, I guess, that it just never worked. And I could say the same thing. Like, I remember I had a band in college and we tried to do everything, everything right to be on the radio. And, you know, we're all like Berkeley kids and we're all good musicians and everything was exactly what it should have been, I guess, paint by numbers, but I was never feeling it. I never really felt it. Like I had this darkness inside of me I needed to express. And then I had this side project called Doth on the side that I'd go home every, you know, I'd go home for like winter break and we'd write this electronic death metal. And I'd be like, man, this is fun. This is because when Doth started, actually, it's really interesting. When Doth started, it was drum machine, like programming, kind of like techno shit with death metal. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was way, way too early. Like it was impossible to do that back then. Nowadays, you can do that. But yeah, back totally. then, no one was having us. That So eventually we added real drums and became a real band. But the whole time I was like, man, this is what I really want to be doing. I don't. I don't want to be doing, like, I try to do this rock stuff, this radio stuff, and my heart's just not in it. But we worked so hard on that radio band. And then my band that gets signed to Roadrunner is my side project, weird-ass band, that, (laughs) uh, because, and I think it's because you can only really do what you feel uh, strongly about. Like, you can't, you can't fake it. I, I don't believe that sellouts do well. No. Uh, I think that I think that typically when bands sell out, they lose fans because people smell authenticity. So like for instance, when Metallica did the black album, I don't think they were selling out. No, I think that's they what they wanted to make. It. Yeah, I think they made exactly what they wanted to make. And then it just so happened to get really famous. No, totally. And that's that's not selling out. No, that's not. That's yeah. That's being an artist. There's a thing that happens that you can't predict this, but there are 
times where certain artists will be in sync. It's like, you know, I don't believe in it. I'm not a spiritual person. I don't believe in karma or, or any of that stuff, but there is like a, some sort of collective unconscious. It's more like where the public is overall mentally, like emotionally, what most of the people resonate with at a certain point in time. And there are some artists who just understand that because they're a part of it and their music just expresses it. Oh yeah, 100%. At the right time, at the right time in history, kind of like the same way that like Slipknot expressed with that, type of anger at the exact right time yep. where the path had been laid by corn. There hadn't been good metal for many, many years. There was anger building uh, in the psyche of the public. And then Slipknot came around and it was like, I remember I was ready for something heavy. Oh, yeah. uh, like it had been so long since good, really fucking heavy music came out. Like it had been like five years and I was already, I was ready to abandon metal. And I remember I heard Sick come on and it's just with, when the double bass came in, I was like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. This is like, they were in tune with something that millions of people were ready for. And as you saw, metal got big again and it spawned the careers of so many bands like every band from the 2010s. Yeah. Maybe Slipknot's not metalcore or anything, but they made it possible for every single successful band of the 2010s to have a career because they answered that yearning that the public had. I mean, now I would even say it's like, it can come from anywhere. Like even like someone like Billie Eilish or something like that, you know, like people mm -hmm. will try and say like, Oh, she's a sellout or whatever, but no way. that girl is a fucking genius. She just won like her between her and her brother, she won ten Grammys last night. That girl is a pure artist. Yeah, and she makes like weird alternative pop music that like a record executive like two years ago, three years ago, would have been like dismissive of, been like, no, this is too weird, too alternative, all that. And because the 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 public is in, like you're saying, like in the space it's at, it's just the perfect time for where people are just sick enough of like the manufactured kind of, not manufactured, but you know, the, the typical female mm -hmm. pop artist that, you know, has become generic in a, in a way nowadays. And yeah, similar with Slipknot. It, They're ready of, for a little darkness. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes people are ready for a little sorrow and darkness and real emotion that isn't like fun music. People who make, I, I like making fun music too. Fun music is, is cool and it has its, its place. And I have tons of songs I made that are just lighthearted fun. But like the stuff that's taken seriously is usually the more uh, somber or like of like the serious emotions, you know? You know, the public has to be ready for it. And, you know, oftentimes I've noticed that it has something to do with the world situation. I'm not, I don't get political. I'm not a political person. I don't vote. Like I don't go there, but, uh, in the 2010s, there was a lot of anger over politics and wars and dark music got big again. Yeah. And, uh, now there's a lot of unrest in the world and things. I'm not saying that they are unstable, but I'm saying they feel unstable. Yeah, and, definitely. You know, whether or not they actually are unstable, that's an argument for experts. And I don't I don't go there because I try to only talk about shit I know, but 
I do know that the world feels unstable. The world feels like it's in a dark place. This country feels like uh, like it's going through some major sort of division, and that means, in my in my experience, that dark music has a place again. No, absolutely. Sometimes that doesn't mean it's going to manifest itself in in metal necessarily all the time. It doesn't no. always. It's not like that genre has a monopoly on those emotions. As a matter of fact, I think metal shit the bed with it uh, for a lot. Not not across the board, but uh, there was a function that metal served when I was growing up. And by the way, I am not one of these back-in-my-day types because I love new music. Yeah, I love Billie Eilish. I love this weird-ass rap shit you do. Like, I love new music. Um, but we're just talking about the impact that certain genres had on society when i was growing up metal was what the angry people were into like there was that was not allowed in the mainstream and there was no voice it was kind of like the voice for the voiceless kind of thing and that it really isn't the voice for the voiceless anymore you know there's a lot of cool things in metal now um but a lot of it's become about being sick like there's like I think metal is a lot more about being sick and badass than it is about being voice for the voiceless. No, totally. And uh, something has to be the voice for the voiceless. I think like in movies, you know, Joker just did that. Yeah. And you saw how big Joker became, um, became the most profitable comic book movie of all time because the whole theme is voice for the voiceless. But uh, I think Billie Eilish speaks to that. Uh the kind of music you speak, you do speaks to that. And metal doesn't really so much anymore, um, but it used to. It no, definitely used to. I definitely think that metal is in a, a place right now where it's kind of in like refining its feet. And like even like the trap metal thing, that's still a part of metal. Like that's, it's still like half of it is metal. The only thing that's really making that genre hip hop is the drums and the, the bass. Like yeah, but do the metalheads consider it metal? No, they don't, and that's that's the that's the issue. Is that the the close-minded, like narrow-mindedness of the mentality that metal kind of got a little cocky with? Because the earlier part of the 2010s, it really seemed like metalcore was for sure the biggest genre of rock music in general, and mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where uh, my theory on why metal isn't as predominant as it was even like five years ago is because um, the industry in metal is just as dated as the the audience listeners can be in terms of like what they're willing to accept that's new and when they're willing to accept new things. But because, um, because metalcore is a more extreme genre than what they just had, there's a lot of screaming and stuff, especially in the early part of the 2000s. And even though the massive popularity to have, it was never really embraced by labels where they would actually be willing like to give it a radio push. The mentality was, oh, that, that will never be played on the radio. Well, yeah, it'll never be played on the radio if you guys don't do your fucking job and like push these bands. Like these bands, this is the new style of, of heavy music, whether you like it or not. And they really, I feel like they really had a, a negative effect. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration, 
and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. The beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. I, I agree completely. However, I do think that uh, as my generation uh, becomes the you know the in power and there's more people like you out there, and I think that could change. I guess as soon as people who understand the future uh, become become the power structure, it could change. That's that's my hope, um, but. I agree that the the power structure in metal is very very dated, and uh, that's part of what hurts it. Yeah, it's like it has an obsession with the past, which I get it. Like Corn and Slipknot and all those bands are fire, and they're ginormous, and it's a great thing to look at. And like those are people I work with, so I I understand. And those dudes are fucking brilliant, but um, you can't just <laughs> expect a new corn or slipknot to keep coming out over and over and over again. And bands can't keep expecting to like play a style from the early two thousands and late nineties with no sort of, uh, update to it. If anything, I feel like the thing that killed it was a lot of, uh, a lot of bands soften their, it's, it's fine. Right. Write Whatever music you want to write. And there's definitely, uh, value in writing like, softer songs and stuff like that, which I think every every band who's good at it should do. But the problem becomes when you edge your sound out to the point where it's boring. Like why you see a lot of these metalcore bands fell off is because they took out they took out all the cool stuff. Like they took out all the fun breakdowns, all like the shit that made their live shows fun. And like kids, whether they like it or not, whether they think that part is campy or whatever stigma, like some band some bands really really took it to heart with like the amount of backlash that, you know, 
the newer scene was getting. And they were like, oh, well, shit, maybe we have to like, you know, even though we're really popular and we just got like a number five album on Billboard or whatever, maybe we have to, you know, dole it out a little bit, like kind of take out the take out the heavy stuff, write more straightforward rock songs. Like, let's not be a metalcore band anymore. Let's be a rock band. My theory with that is that the problem is that when those bands tried to do that, they were trying something they didn't know how to do. Yeah. And that's why they failed at it. Like they don't No one wants to hear a metalcore band like try and play a rock song. You know, I want to hear like a yeah. rock band <laughs> who comes from that that kilt play that type of stuff. That that's not to say that if you come from the metalcore world, you can't learn how to do it. No, totally. And this is coming from personal experience watching this happen. People who like the same way that we were saying that you really should learn these other genres. Like you should take the time to like, if you're, you're combining genres, actually learn those genres. Like it, you can't just come from nowhere. Uh, when a lot of these metalcore bands tried to go active rock, their active rock elements were coming from nowhere, basically. Yeah. So it was kind of half-assed and, you know, the general public doesn't, know that it's half-assed. They just know if they like it or not. Yeah. And they didn't like it and because it was fucking bland. It, it's just bland. And I think, I really do think that it comes down to people trying to do things for commercial reasons that they don't really feel. Totally. So because they didn't really feel the active rock stuff, they didn't, uh, they didn't pursue it with the same artistic fervor that they... Uh, pursued the heavy stuff and had they pursued it like really really learned the best of you know the active rock like you know no i i agree i don't know Le learn some alice in chains learn yeah. some sound garden learn some newer stuff learn some pop like, yeah learn all these all these different things that make for a great rock band um learn how to actually play the style properly. Yeah. Learn how to write a fucking melody yeah. with your voice. Like then update it and like then yeah. add to it. like I think that uh I mean I write I write with a lot of bands too, you know, like that's a another thing. So it's been kind of fun writing for a lot of these metalcore bands that some are attempting to do similar things. And it's kind of uh interesting to to have like a take on, you know, the creative process with all these other bands, like working with them collaboratively. I don't want to throw anyone under the bed because, it, you know, metalheads and all these bands have writers, even though metal bands have as many writers as pop artists. Just sorry to break it to y'all, but <laughs> your favorite songs probably weren't written just by that band. They were probably written by a co-writer and or producer. Unless if it's an opeth or something. Yeah, unless it's like there's exceptions to the to the yeah. rule, but it's it's extremely common. And because uh, now it's kind of just like, all right, where where do we go from here? You know, and some of these bands have done a good job at it. It's not like a every band shit the bed on it. Like some some of these bands are actually like you know pulling it off pretty well. And um, well, I think why I get why I've been getting these opportunities is because of the the hip hop thing and. Tons of bands now are like, hey, we want to have this like blend, you know, of kind of what you're doing, but for our band, so we can have these verses that are more in that ilk, you know, of like the production vibe. And then we can have these big choruses and stuff like that. 
So it's kind of fun taking what I'm doing with like the trap metal stuff, but implementing it into like an actual band. And be like, how do how do like how do you go into the 2020s with this? Because every decade, something something new happens. It's just it's just like science at this point. Like you can almost you can almost count it. It just every 10 years there's going to be a new thing that happens or something is going to evolve to a point of un- being unrecognizable from where it started. So a band approaches you, a band that's done well, okay, for say metalcore or something, deathcore, metalcore, whatever, like some band that's done well in heavy music that's not an opeth, okay? Yeah. Not a cannibal corpse, not a band that is just are what they are and you know you just got to record it a band that's coming to you because they know what you do and they want to modernize however they don't actually understand those genres and they don't have maybe they don't have the chops necessarily but they want to add that stuff in how do you make it natural how do you make it make sense well you know at a certain point you have to know when you kind of kind of got to take the wheel on things. And at a certain point, you know, uh, it, it, it also depends. It's pretty unique to each situation. Like with issue, like a band like issues, for example, they are all geniuses. Every member of that band is equally contributing in terms of creativity because they all have something to bring to the table. And I kind of just like facilitate ideas, you know, and play more of the traditional a producer a role in terms of the writing sessions and stuff like that, like is which what I work with them on is like the writing sessions. And, uh, you know, we have a, a, a method that works. So with that band, it's kind of just like playing to their strength. I know what Sky's feeling. I know what AJ's feeling. I know what Tyler wants. Like Josh is kind of into this. So I kind of just go, hey, let's like get together and kind of stir the melting pot, you know, just kind of be the, the middle person. And that's like a, a position to be in it's kind of knowing your place, you know, like I'm not going to sit there and like grab the guitar from AJ or, or Sky and be like, oh, like, let me just write all your riffs for you because they are going to come up with something way sicker than what I am in terms of what they're in, where they're doing. So I'll maybe be like, hey, what if we do this production idea behind it, you know? So that's kind of my role in, in that sort of thing. But for uh, stuff that's much more involved, like stuff that I'm really taking the creative helm on. I just kind of do what I, I want. Like essentially the band is coming to me for a reason. So I'll be like, yo, you like, you want me to add my flavor to this? Like, let me, let me do it. And I'll, sh- I'll show you what it sounds like. So whatever the band is, I'll try and think like, okay, like this is their style. This is what their last album sounded like. This is what their fans seem to like from them. This is what I like from them. This is what I would like to see the direction they go in. So I'm going to try and create that. And hopefully they're on the same page. And then I usually do that, kind of present it to them. And then they'll be like, okay, sick. Like maybe let's try this or that, you know, like changes here and there. But it's just kind of like being another member, you know, it's just kind of trying to put yourself in the position of like, okay, I'm the guitar player for this band for the day, or I'm like the, a member of this band for, for this song. And it's just uh, taking that role seriously, you know, and just uh, trying to vision, you know, like you're saying, like vision, like, have have a vision for that specific idea that is separate from the vision you have from whatever other band. You don't want to just have your sound and then every band you touch sounds like you, you know? Yeah, which sometimes happens. Yeah, I mean, and it's it, it's going to happen to some degree. I'm sure 
as these songs and stuff start to come out, maybe some people, I already am experiencing it where I'm kind of like, all right, I need to, I need to pivot a little bit sonically and, and add some more elements and stuff because I'm getting a lot of stuff where people are like, oh, this is a, a like a Morgoth type of, of beat or this is, you know, that kind of thing. I'm like, that's cool, but uh, you don't really want to just be known for that one style, you know? So, yeah. So that's kind of where, yeah, that's, if anyone who's working out there to, to be a collaborator in bands and stuff like that, there's no, and bands who are hesitant about working with like their friends and stuff on music, like the band doesn't have to be the only people who write music for that band. Like that's limiting, you know? If you have a homie who's super sick at guitar, he's not in a band or he, you know, you just want to write a song with them, don't be ashamed in doing that. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Whatever gets you the result and makes you make the best music you possibly can is the right answer. So that's why bigger bands do this is because they understand that. Like they understand that, hey, like we're in like a world now of, of super creative geniuses that can bring a lot to the table for us, like sonically. So not saying I'm that at all, but um, that's what the mentality of writing with other people, you know, it's like, okay, cool. Like this person's super sick at that. Like we necessarily aren't great at, we couldn't make that this song as good without this person's help. So you write a song with that person and then the result comes out sick and the fans are happy. Would you rather people make music that isn't as good or would you rather people be open-minded and like collaborate? You know, I know ideally fans are like, Oh, I want my favorite band just to write all their music and it just to be a, a, an expression of them and stuff. But that's not reality in the music world at, in almost most cases. One of the things that Var always said that, a producer should do if they want to be successful and have a repeat clients is make the songs better. Do whatever needs to happen to have the band coming out of the studio with something better than they went in with. Yeah. Whatever it takes. Totally. And to the point where they know and they feel like working with you made their music better. Yeah, and if they're excited about their music at the end of it, then they're going to be stoked. It doesn't really matter who who wrote it at the end of the end of the day. It's like matters what the end product is, you know. And that's not to say, you know, I get like the sentiment that some people are going to be like, "Oh, it's not fair," you know. People labels just put together these pretty bands and just get super like genius writers to like write their music for them, and then boom, they have a career. It's like handed to them on a silver platter. And there's some truth to that. There's definitely some truth to that. Some, but that's a lot harder to do than people realize. Yeah, and it's really understating, like, uh, you know, it, that doesn't work. So many failed examples can come of that. Usually the, the bands that make it through are bands who are actually capable of uh, making their own music. They're just writing with other people as a bonus, you know? Like, that's extremely common, and there's, like, really nothing wrong with that. And I think there's, like... I think there's mentalities are what are what hold a lot of musicians back. And there's like these sacred guards and stuff like that, that people stick to because they think it's pure or whatever. And they just want to be like, make it in a pure way or I don't know. Like, I just think that kind of stuff uh, gets in your way. You know, you should just be open-minded to collaboration. And that's kind of one thing that uh, being a producer outside of um, like the rock world kind of taught me was, Oh, okay, cool. Like collaborating is, 
really sick. And there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to uh, produce the way I produce in hip hop and pop in rock music. Like why can't, like I go to this other producer go, Hey, like let's make this beat together. I'm going to send it to, you know, like rest in peace, like juice world or like, you know, anyone like that or, well, like let's make this for this person. Same with bands. Like I, there's no reason I, I can't be like, Hey, like, Let's write a song, you know, my, my friend's band, they're working on their new album. Let's maybe send them a song, give them some ideas. Uh, and then, you know, that album's going to turn out better because they have more minds on it, unless they're a type of band that is like, that's, you know, like you said, like an Opeth or something like that. But that's, that's rare. It's very, very rare. I know that some people listening to this are going to be thinking to themselves, okay, that's all well and good, but I can't get any of the bands I work with to take any of my ideas seriously, what do I do? Well, then you might have to rethink the bands you're working on and the type of producer you want to be. Do you want to be an engineer or do you want to be a producer? And what kind of producer do you want to be? Because the producer title has a couple different things now. The old school way of being a producer is kind of like the person who oversees the project necessarily kind of steers the direction of like who's going to mix it, who's going to engineer it, who's going to edit, like is this song too long? What's wrong with it? You know, that kind of stuff. The producer in the more modern, or at least in the terms of pop and, and rock and hip hop and stuff like that means the producer of the music, the person who's creating the music. So basically you're a one man band. Um, I think that if you are having trouble, like getting a band to take your ideas and stuff like that, then maybe that's just that project. Maybe that band is gun ho on their sound. And if they're gun ho on their sound, it's their band. Just be like, and they say they've paid you already and all that, like, then cool. Just do what, do what you have to do. Get through the project, make it as good as you can bring it, but don't force your opinion down people's throats. I'd, I'd recommend though, try to try to work with bands who you, who are open to your ideas. If you have an idea for them, but don't force your ideas in there just so you have your ideas in there. Like if the band is already sick and they're already like, like with issues, for example, like I was explaining, like I explained that first just so I could like, you know, be like, yo, this is a, this is an example of a band where I'm not going to force ideas into it because they are stupid. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) First of all, (laughs) I can do my strength in the band. Like, for example, like right now we're kind of like just messing around with uh, rough song ideas. And this is actually one, one little cool Nugget, I'd like to this help for people who are songwriters or bands in general. Uh, that is a cool thing that Issues uh, does is we'll make a song or at least like a verse chorus idea just over like production, like a kind of like minimal basic production that just kind of sets the vibe of what we want the song to feel like and just write like a verse and a chorus. And if that verse and chorus is super sick, then we'll write a whole song around it. So the vocal takes the main focus in uh, that scenario, you know, where you're writing songs with the vocal in mind first, because you've got to write when, when you're writing riffs around vocals and like band structures around vocals, it makes you think completely different about it because there's something in the way, you know, there's something mm-hmm. you can't just play your way to make stuff more interesting or whatever you like add layers a million times over and try and come up with this thing. And then the vocalist has to find a, a place to sit in after the fact. You're having to write around the vocal. That's one of the things I think that makes that band so sick is that they are able to walk this line of progressive and pop in a way I don't think any other band can. And part of that is the attention to 
the vocal. It's about that. And it's about, uh, the riffs are amazing. The rhythms are amazing. Everything else is amazing. But the reason it works is because they help. The vocal is already in mind a lot of times, you know? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think that, uh, there's a few things at play too, is you have a reputation now and, um, a body of work. And so people work with you because of that, you know, because, because they know who you are and they know what you've done and they know what you bring to the table, right? So they seek you out for what you do. But what about before anyone knew that you did that or before that was established? Um, how, how did you get people to even give you a shot? I mean, I know you were in Winds of Plague. I know that, I know that you, you know, you were working your way up, but how did you get people to give you a shot as a uh, co-writer? Well, um, you know, it, it kind of happened by almost not not by accident, but I just kind of realized that oh wow, people in bands are are down to to work with me too because again, it kind of goes back to a lot of people in rock music really like hip hop music because I think it's just the uh, the modern pop music, you know. So a lot of these people. The default. Every generation has a their their pop music. You know, like what's what's popular. What's what's like on top. What are all the kids listening to? You know, it's kind of funny because because I was in Goliath, I was able to kind of get my foot into this door of all these kids who are like kind of warped tour kids, starting to make this underground type of hip hop where they're blending emo and metal and all kinds of different genres together. And it was like, oh, this dude's like from a band, so they're like, oh yeah, I'll hear your beats. Like, let's see what your beats sound like. So it kind of went from that and I was able to get, uh, I was able to get those placements through that. And through those placements, as I started to stack them up and when people started like in bands, I noticed like when I go to shows and stuff, more people in bigger bands and stuff would be like, Oh, I know who you are. And I was really surprised by that because I was like, Oh, well I haven't really worked on, you know, too many people from this world's thing other than the fact that I play in Winds of Plague and stuff like that, which I know is a, like we're, we're, a well-known band and but then it started to become different it started to become i started to realize hey like i can work with these bands because they like the kind of music i'm making in this other world it just kind of started being like hey i can add some production on your songs you know like let me let me take a stab at uh you know maybe making making some of my ideas you know that you like from this world and i can apply it into your into your band you know and sometimes that just means like playing keys like luckily mm-hmm. being in a symphonic band like Winds of Plague, I uh, very much, you know, that's why I even was able to start making beats and ha- develop a sound was because I knew how to structure keyboard arrangements and like, you know, symphonic elements and stuff like that. And then it just becomes a an exercise of choosing sounds and stuff. Like, it's, mm-hmm. But if you already have the, that's really all the genres is. Like in my head, like that was the big turning point for me when I was like, it's like, oh, all music is super similar. Like it's just the sound, like what sound, are you playing it through a clean tone? Are you playing it with a synth? Are you playing like, is this a full-time beat, a half-time beat? And like those little things are the things that pick what genre it fits into. But they're really fluid musical ideas throughout the whole, throughout all music, you know? So I was able to to kind of just put my foot in as just, hey, let me add some production here and there. And then luckily uh, with like the issues thing, they were just like, Hey, why don't you just like engineer like the writing sessions for us? And like, you know, you can produce the writing sessions 
for this next album, which came to which is Beautiful Oblivion. And I'm not the only person they worked with. But then like I went on Warp Tour with them, like all of Warp Tour, and we just spent the whole Warp Tour working on the album. Like I was there specifically to work on that album. And um then that just started making it able to be easier so I could be like going up to my friends who are in bands who've been my friends for a long time now and be like, Hey, let's collaborate. You know, like I got this thing going over here. Like this is kind of what I've been doing. You know, I got the, like the juice world, like, you know, the platinum and all that exciting stuff where it gets people more. Now I can flex that kind of shit. But beforehand it was just kind of, you know, really just telling people what I could add to what I think their songs were and not being afraid to ask fans like, Hey, let's like, let's collaborate. Like, don't be afraid to, you know, don't be afraid to uh, talk. Like, don't be afraid to go up to people and, and try and like meet them on a creative level. But the thing is that when you did that, you already had, uh, you already had years under your belt in your own band, you know, having toured, having put out music, you know, like you weren't starting from zero, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, 100%. Even if you weren't fully formed or whatever, as far as your skills go or your direction goes, it wasn't coming out of nowhere when you ask people to collaborate. Another thing that I tell producers who want to work their way up that they really should consider doing is you need some sort of a calling card. You need a strength. Something. And uh, having a, your own band that or your own music that people can point to is massive. It, so I've seen massive. it work. Yeah. So many people I know, that's where a lot of their initial success came from was because of the band connection. And the band doesn't have to be huge. Like you don't have to be in a huge band, but you need to have some sort of musical output that people can respect. Um, that And it doesn't need to be huge. Like I said, it doesn't need to be huge, but there needs to be something that you've done that's you. Yeah, totally. So like if you're just an engineer, for instance, like all you've done is engineer on people's stuff and you haven't, don't have your own band or hadn't really written your own music, I think it's going to be a lot harder to convince people to collaborate with you than if uh, you've been an engineer and you have those engineering credits, whether they're local or national or whatever. Uh, but you also have music to show for uh, where people can listen to what you've done and be like, oh, okay, this dude's a good musician. Oh, this dude writes cool stuff. You need something. Yeah, I totally agree. Like with my story, there's a lot of specifics in it. And I think with everyone's story, you're going to find there's a lot of specifics in it. You have to really be self-aware of specifics, you know, uh, and like the couple steps ahead thing is... What do you mean by specifics? Like in terms of... Like I started in a certain place and I was able to evolve to another place because of uh, specific skill sets and because of my specific friends and the place I wanted to go and just kind of the, basically I was able to, I have a little unconventional path, maybe I could say. Oh, I get it. I get it. I mean, I same thing. Like I learned how to record so that I could record my own band. I used the studio to make connections for my band those connections then led to the connections that got my band signed. But the whole time I was recording bands. And then once my band got signed, I started working with real producers. I used my skills from the studio to uh, help out on our records. And then because of that, that led to me getting hired 
at a really big studio, metal studio that you came to. Yeah. Because that skill set, I was asked to do Creative Live. And through the skill set that I got on Creative Live, combined with the skill set that I got through being in a band and producing and all the you know, different shit I've done over the years. That's what led to being able to pull off URM. It's all very specific stuff. Totally. I think uh, maybe something that people can uh, use and apply in, in their lives is like, if say you're just, uh, yeah, like what you're saying, have your own music. Even if that means like, if you're a writer or you want to, or you're a songwriter, you want to start a band or whatever, I can't, I mean, this is URM, so... I'm assuming everyone here has a basic knowledge of recording. If you can get your demos or your ideas to a place where you're stoked on them and you're down to release them to the public, do not be afraid to start your own SoundCloud or Bandcamp or whatever and have something just to show people. Just If you're not getting any bands to record, then make dope music on your own. And if that's what you want to do, like then you'll be able to be like, hey, check this out. Like, I would like to work with you. Uh, you know, here's what I, here's what my stuff sounds like. And if it sounds cool and it's something they want, then they're going to fuck with you. But you might have a little period of where you're going to have to really focus on yourself and you might not get a lot of work all the time. And that because period now could last several years. Yeah, it really could. And that's, I mean, it happened. It ha- that definitely happened to me. Like, I was just recording local bands, you know, in, in my scene because... I worked on my band stuff and they liked the way my band sounded. So I was able to just, you got to be good at, nowadays you got to be good at a a lot of different things. You can't really just be one thing. If you're just one thing, uh, chances are there's going to be someone who is good at a bunch of things who is going to be better than you. Or even if they're not better than you at that one thing, there's still going to be someone who's good at multiple things who they might go to otherwise because they have other skill sets. Because it's no yeah. longer rare to be good at recording, I feel like. I remember when I decided to leave Berkeley to start my studio, but really I wanted to get signed. Um, there was like a five-year gap like where, and I remember for the, those first two years of just being in my parents' basement, really the, the main thing I did was just get better. Like I was just, practicing a lot and not just practicing guitar. I would like analyze people's lyrics like for several hours. I would analyze their music. I would do covers of like Beatles songs or an Eminem song or a Slipknot song. I would just learn and learn and learn and get better. And there was no light at the end of the tunnel, like no prospects. No, I didn't know anybody in the music industry you know, outside of my dad's end, which is classical, but that doesn't, <laughs> a lot of people think that my dad helped get me signed, which oh, really? is so stupid because the classical world and the metal world couldn't be further apart. But yeah, just years of just sitting in a basement. And uh, and that's after the years of sitting in a dorm room trying to get better. And, you know, years before that, during high school of trying to get better. But yeah, years of just, knowing that this will pay off. And I think everybody needs to go through that time period where, you know, you might not see the light at the end of the tunnel, but the thing that is the light, it should be the light at the end of the tunnel at that point should be you getting better. Yeah, totally. You got to focus on yourself. Yeah. And if, 
if you don't go through any time period of like growth, you're really, when you start to get stuff, you're not going to really know what to do. And at some point you're probably going to make a, a mistake, you know, I mean, you're going to make mistakes all along the way, but if you can uh, really like hone in on your craft, figure out what you're doing, like, and sometimes you just have to like go with the flow, you know, like sometimes what you want to do isn't going to be what you end up doing. Like, for example, I did not grow up dreaming of being a hip hop producer and thinking that I was going to have any sort of like established name as a, a producer in this world. Like it just wasn't, yeah, wasn't my plan. My plan wasn't to run a school. Yeah, exactly. You just kind of <laughs> like take opportunities as they come being how small, however small those opportunities are. And you try and get as much out of them as you can, like whether it be from a learning experience or whether it be from a real live actual, uh, you know, like career building experience where I just started making beats because it was fun to me. Like I was like, oh, this is fun. Like I didn't really expect, you know, I was like, oh, this is my ticket to, to you know, this is my ticket to success. It was really just, uh, oh, cool. I like doing this and I'm down to do this every day until I figure out what it is I'm doing exactly. And luckily, I'm, I'm just not afraid to go up and talk to people. And I, I think maybe I have a halfway decent gauge of when is the appropriate time? What, how do you go in quick, make an impact, like say what you need to say kind of thing. And maybe that person will remember you and want to work with you. Maybe they won't. Like if you're, if you're a producer or you're someone who's collaborating, you want to work with, say, say you see your favorite artist or, you know, someone who you admire a lot, who's not super famous to where, you know, why bother, but someone who is, you know, popular enough to where you know them and you like their music and you want to work with them. Like if you go up to them and it's like a, a good time and you go, Hey, what's up? You know, try and meet them on a level of being more of a peer than a, than a fan and try and be like, Talk to them maybe about specifics in their music that you like and stuff like that. And if you can talk to them, be like, yeah, I make like this kind of stuff. I would love to, you know, maybe collaborate with you in whichever way, shape or form you can. And sometimes that comes with uh, rejection, you know, sometimes nothing's going to come of it. But eventually maybe someone might say yes or someone might at least take the time to give you their email. And then that's when you, you know, shoot your shot like I have so many examples of, I have so many crazy artist emails and numbers and stuff like that, that I've sent tons of tracks to, never hear anything back. Probably never will. That's not how like I'm going to work with those people, you know? How did you handle rejection at the beginning when I imagine, I mean, dude, I don't think rejection ever feels good, but the thing is that once you're at a certain level of success, you have so much going on. I feel like if something falls through, you're already on to the next thing and you can't really can't really focus on it. Like there's something I actually need to talk to you about after this because uh, we might have something falling through right now. And uh, I know that a few years ago, I would have been way more nervous. Now I'm not. And I remember, I think it was uh, Michael Beinhorn or one of these massive producers saying that the way that they deal with rejection is don't even worry about it. Just you're on to the next project. If one doesn't work out, like say you get fired off a mix or whatever, it's like, all right, too bad. That didn't work out, but uh, let's make this next thing I'm working on the best thing I've ever done. Yeah, the end. totally. And it's just, yeah, it just kind of is what it is. You know, if, uh, 
sometimes the rejection won't be like out front, like, no, I don't want to work with you. Sometimes it'll just be in like silence, you know, that you're just not going to hear back or something like that. And if that's the case, like, yeah, just don't, don't get too butthurt about it. Maybe it's not, it's not, it's usually never malicious. It's usually never like the artist is like, fuck this person or something like that. It's usually just, you have to put yourself in their shoes, you know, like they have a limit, a, a lot of options with who they collaborate with and stuff. And sometimes you have to ascend to their level. You know, they're not going to come down and meet you. You have to at least rise to a place where they take you seriously. And um, I know that's not an easy uh, answer for everyone to hear that the answer to getting more gigs and being more consistent and stuff like that is to be better and to do more calculated things that get bigger and draw the attention of more people. But it's probably the most true real thing uh that you're gonna hear is that what you gotta do is you have to take your work seriously don't be too much of a perfectionist where you never release anything because it's never good enough but you know find your sound find what you want to do and these are all very like general terms you know people can take them in whichever way they want but a lot of times you have to at least have something to show or something to bring to the table. Like you can be friends and become friends and get close and all that stuff later after the work, but you have to bring some sort of value to the equation. Like say you're a a guitar player or whatever, and you see um, an artist you like, like a singer or something. Sometimes that doesn't mean like, yo, let me send you beats. Sometimes it can mean, hey, like uh, I play guitar, you know, I make uh, this kind of music, you know, I love your stuff. Like maybe, uh, can I send you like riff ideas or could I get like your contact to your producer and send him riff ideas? And sometimes it's just, yeah, like know your strength, you know, like if you're a player, like if you're, if you're good at one thing, really, uh, try and milk that for as much as you can in different ways. And all the times that doesn't mean you're going to be the producer for some band's project or you're going to be the, uh, you know, running the show, sometimes it means you're going to play a small role and take that small role as seriously as you take the big role. Yep. You know, the the thing you said about ascend to people's level, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, That is something also that comes up a lot when I talk to producers who want to go beyond the local level. How do they get past this local level? Um, And I ask them this one question that, they, if they're being honest, it gets them thinking the right way, which is, okay, so you want to work with signed acts. You work with all locals. Why would a signed act work with you? Like, what's in it for them? Why would a label risk their budget on you? Like, what what is it about you that's going to cause them to work with someone they've never heard of that doesn't have a track record, who they don't know can handle the pressure of uh, of a label release. Like, why would they work with you? And I don't mean that in an offensive way. Like, I'm not, I really want an answer. Like, I need you to explain to me why they should work with you. Because if you can't answer that, they're definitely not going to know. And uh, normally they're like, I can't answer that. that. I was like, okay. That's why you're not getting those yeah. artists because uh, 
you don't even know what you're bring, what you bring to the table. Totally. Um, and it's like no one else is going to know for you. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's like maybe you need to refocus. Like maybe you're too focused on working with a signed act, and that's like your end all be all, and that's what you're trying to put all your chips in that bag. Maybe you should worry about your local act becoming that signed act. And maybe you shouldn't even be worried about working with a signed act at all. Like we live in 2020. Like if you want to be a producer for a band and you have some local band that you think is sick and that you can make better, try and have a vision for them. Like be like, hey, so like, all right, this is what we're going to do. Like you can, we're going to work on this, say song or EP, whatever. And we're going to shoot like a couple music videos we're going to blow you up on the internet first, which is what I would recommend to any artist from any genre. Now, like don't trip about playing touring off a demo for six months to like a couple years. Like if I learned anything from Goliath, it was useful lessons like that to where I was like, okay, nowadays the thing you got to do is focus on make a dope song with that artist, whoever it is you're working with and try and make that song get to its highest point that you guys can possibly get it. So if you can be like, all right, let's shoot a music video. We only have, say you're like, oh, well, the band only has a couple hundred bucks for a video. Well, again, we live in 2020. Like find a video director who is an up and coming dude who's dope. Like work with your local community, work with your creatives. And because that's how everyone starts out. Like it's never, it's so much better too if you uh, like rise up with these people than if you meet someone who's already up there. Like a lot of the stuff like that I've gotten partially is because I produced and engineered uh, with like my friends, uh, you know, like in the B Brigade thing I was saying, like Little Zan's music because he was just my friend Diego, like staying on our couch at our house recording sometimes. And the music that he made in... Uh, in the garage that we lived in that like my uh, roommate John like uh, engineered a lot of and stuff was became mainstream. Like just he became a pop mainstream artist and he went from a broke kid from the IE sleeping on our, our couch sometimes. And it was because it was like, Oh, this kid has a cool voice. He has an image. Like all this stuff is in place. Fuck it. Maybe he has a chance. So let's, let's just make some music with him. Like, you know, why not? And that worked out. And because that worked out, it, it changed my life. And that will happen to you if you believe in the artist you're working at at a smaller level. Don't worry about working with Slipknot. Don't worry about working with Korn. Don't worry. Like, don't be. Don't think that you can start from zero and jump all the way there. It might happen to some people, but it's not going to happen to everybody. And if you can just take your local talent or your local project that you're working on and be like, okay, cool, like. So we're going to we're going to record this single and you do the best job you can. You know, you pull out all your cards. Maybe you're not going to guitar tones, but you know someone who, you know, has all the best Kemper presets or whatever. Pay them to reamp your shit, like whatever you got to do to make it get to the best level you can with, with uh, you know, like whatever <laughs> your budget is. Find the local uh, you know, videographer whoever who's going to do it for whatever your budget is and trust that they're creative, you know, like be into their stuff, like check out their stuff. And if they have, if they're doing a lot with a little, then that's the best thing you can, you can ask for is to get these people early. So if you do that and you have a vision, you put it out on your own, be like, okay, well, we're going to put it out on our own. Then we're going to invest 
like this couple hundred bucks into promotion, you know, where we're going to like, like blast beat network or something like that, you know, where they do ads and stuff on metal sucks. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so something like that, like where you can, you know, do your research, like, like, all right, cool. We're going to make merch designs that look like this. We're going to, this band, this release is going to follow this aesthetic, have a complete vision of the idea. And don't think that, Oh, like, you know, the, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work with this signed band and everything's going to fall into place because nowadays that signed band is in a similar position uh, as the unsigned band because you have the same creative tools you're working with and you have the same landscape. The only thing is uh, the signed band maybe has more of a budget, but nowadays people don't give a fuck if you have a high quality like music video. If you don't have the money for a high quality music video, make up for it in creativity. You know, like whatever you have, like if you have to make a video look like an old style VHS, but at least it's like a vibe, you know, or at least it's like Mm -hmm. a consistent aesthetic and you can like take the band you're working with and have them really focus on their image and focus on all the stuff around the music. Then that's how you're going to, to be able to work with these bigger bands. Because as soon as people find out, like say that band ends up doing something cool and they're like, who produced it? And it's like, you produced it. So you can then go to a band, maybe a level above them and be like, hey, like, do the same thing. Like, sit there and have a vision, you know, and exactly back to the vision thing. Like, that doesn't just mean like, oh, I'm going to mix this genre and that genre. You know, it means it means like what Jack White does with like colors and shit like that. You know, like this is only going to be black, white and red, like that kind of shit. Or Slipknot with masks, you know, like or like what with Winds of Plague, like the samurai thing. If you can have that vision and you can help that band with that vision. And then when you uh, start working with these other bi- other bands and you do the same thing, something's going to work out to some level for you eventually. If you just keep at it and you keep uh, helping bands with their visions and helping them realize it's more than just music. So I think that's probably the best thing I could tell people is that don't trip up so hard on like, oh man, like I'm not working with the artists who I listen to every day, you know, like, I really want to work with them so bad more than anything that I'm going to put all my eggs in the basket of trying to work with that artist. Like, why is that? Yeah. Like you said, why is that artist going to work with you? But if you come to the table with something that's dope and that they're like, maybe one day, you know, like I said, like things lead to another thing. That's what happened to me was people were like, Oh, this is sick. Who produced it? Oh, he produced it. Oh, let's work with him. And the next thing you know, you know, you have a fucking personal relationship with like, Sid Wilson and Jonathan Davis. Like that's how that's how that works is start smaller around you, but take it seriously and try and see a vision through. And then you're gonna climb a ladder, you know? And it's gonna be it could be slower, it could be harder, or it could be overnight. You could it could. You could do this and you could start this with a band and you could spawn the next Bring Me the Horizon, you know, or you could produce the next Bring Me the Horizons fucking album and you had no idea because you guys were just kinda doing shit that you thought was cool. But you can't like... Could also take 15 years. Yeah, exactly. But you can't force it. You know, you guys have to like come up with something creative and original. And that means looking outside of music. You know, that means like looking at other things you're into. Like if you're into video games or something like that, or like say, you know, like how there's like Power Glove and all these bands who are super into video games. Like maybe the aesthetic of the EP you're working at has to do in line with what you guys are fucking with outside of music. And that's how a lot of times you develop lifestyle things, you know, is 
stuff that's related around more than just music, like how like suicidal tendencies are with like skateboarding or something like that. You know, they embody yep. skateboard culture into their image because they were all skate kids and that's just what their day-to-day lives were. So say, yeah, fill in the blank with whatever you're into, game, like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, whatever, like any nerdy thing you could think of or any football, doesn't matter. Like if you guys come up with a cool idea and if it's your homies or it's just like, the band from your local scene who you believe in them, they believe in you. Uh, that's probably the best thing that, or the most realistic path to a higher place is going to be do it at a lower level first, prove yourself and climb the ladder. I, I know some people who have sent me songs that they produced and wrote and everything. And they kind of have like all the boxes checked off that you mentioned, but they're like, why has nobody why isn't this working? And I hear it and I'm like, buddy, because you suck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be mean or anything, but like typically that's the reason. It's I, I never hear these tracks from somebody and think to myself, damn, nothing's happening. This is amazing. How is nothing happening? Mm-hmm. So my advice when people check off all those boxes and nothing's happening, it's been a while and nothing's happening and nobody cares. Focus on getting better. That's that's that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about maybe you do need to take some time to focus on yourself and on your own level and really refining your craft. Maybe your craft just isn't there yet. That's I think a lot of times people will check off those boxes that you said, but they're not ready. They're just not ready. They're not good enough. And totally. And it is what it, it is what it is. Um also the other thing, sometimes maybe they're just good at one thing and they're trying to do everything. And yeah, like what you said before was your specialty was sick-ass riffs. And so you took that and you tried to apply that where you felt they were needed outside the genre. And so you didn't try to do a bunch of things that you weren't great at. You took the thing that you knew how to do best and started there. And I think that, that that's the other thing is uh, I think people haven't always taken the time to understand their strengths and their weaknesses. And something I like to say is, I mean, I'm not a fan of blues, okay? I yeah. actually kind of hate, hate blues. but We're, We differ in that. It's fine. But it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's okay. I still love you. But you'll never hear B.B. King try to play an Ingve Malmsteen solo, right? Like, B.B. King always played what B.B. King was great at. And so I I don't know a single B.B. King recording that was not awesome for what it is. He knew his strengths and I'm sure he was aware of his weaknesses and he just didn't, you never heard his weaknesses. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, every musician, every great musician has weaknesses and those musicians that that people worship they worship them because they have not heard them play what they're bad at playing. Yeah, because they wouldn't care otherwise. Yeah. Those guys and ladies who we all think are amazing have the self-awareness to only put out there the stuff they are amazing at. No, totally. And I think uh, one thing, too, to just not really like discourage people too much is uh, sometimes... It's more important that you're making like a dope song and a dope product than the most clean prestige like product, you know, 
Like I agree. When 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 I'm saying like make it good, I don't mean make sure that the mix is perfect or like that this can sit right up perfectly next to like you know a uh, fucking Andy Sneap mix or something like that. Or uh, I'm saying that make understand the the project what you're doing and what the vibe you're going for is. So for example, like Lil Xan stuff, it was okay. This is the vibe. Like it's it's not perfect. It's super raw. It's almost punk rock and it's approach that it doesn't give a fuck. So the fact that it doesn't give a fuck gives you so much room to to just for imperfections and rawness, you know? So it was basically, all right, cool. Like we're just gonna make these hard beats or like these like mellow, like emo y mm-hmm. kind of vibe beats that have a sound and a vibe to them that match dude's voice and he has a cool sounding voice, so you can have him put on whatever and his voice sounds is going to sound cool because that's his strength. So you play to that. That doesn't mean, oh man, like I got to make this shit sound like so, like good, like dream theater or something like that. No, like if you're recording some band who's like this awesome raw hardcore band, like look at Knock, like look at a band like Knock Loose. This is a perfect example. That band is selling more than the main stage Warped Tour bands of like five years ago. They're shitting on them, and they're uh, just uh, Will Putney just perfectly knows what that band is, what the vibe is, and they consistently go for that, and they kill it at that. So if you know what the vibe is, and you know how to create that vibe, that's what's the most important: is do what's right for the project. Don't do, don't have some general blanket of ideas that you think is. Um, going to be right you know like because it's a standard nowadays it's all about fucking throwing standards out the window and like doing what's just cool like do what's cool don't do what uh people maybe expect out of out of you and that's i don't think that people are really like doomed if they're not the most talented at you know one thing or the other just know like you said know your weakness and if you're weak in that that area Try and surround yourself with good people and try and surround yourself with talented people who are like-minded. And that doesn't mean surround yourself with famous people who are already successful because tons of there are so many, there are more, there's so many people talented who aren't popular, who never get are gonna get what they the credit they deserve or whatever. And but if you can surround yourself with a friend group or like collaborators that have different strengths in different areas, and you guys can learn to work together and be like, okay, like. My strength is mixing. So for this project we're working on, like I'm going to do that. Your strength is, uh, you know, your guitar tones. Your strength is your vocal production, whatever, you know, like whatever it is your strength is, know your weakness, know your strength and surround yourself with people who complement your strengths or who can, who can, you can lean on in terms of like weaknesses. Like for example, like a weakness for me for a while that actually like working with issues really, really helped. And you might even be able to test this because you recorded me pre-doing this. Was uh, my rhythms I didn't feel were super interesting when I was like early on. You know, I wasn't that wasn't like my strength was writing really cool, exciting rhythms in terms of I just I just felt like it was my weakness. So working with artists who that is their strength now that is no longer a weakness of mine. Like now that's a, a strength of mine. Know where you need to like work on the, what muscle group, you know? If your weakness is you don't come up with really cool, great melodies and stuff, if you have any friends or anyone you can like work with who you admire their melody capability, you know, like when you work with them, really like try and understand what they're doing. Like, like try and take 
the influence from people around you, that's going to have a bigger effect on you probably than, uh, you know, what album you're listening to. If you can really learn from fellow musicians and fellow artists and stuff who you can be honest with yourself and be like, man, I fucking suck at this. Like whatever this area is, like I need to work on it and work on it and work on it and work on it until it gets better to where you can, you're not afraid to present it to people, you know? We're actually doing something in URM now called the Collab Smash that happens every month. Basically, we get these different teams together of people collaborating and there's like a, a goal, which is write a song in the style of. So like say it was in the style of Knocked Loose yeah. one month because uh, we had Knocked Loose on. And uh, so you had different teams, like you had a Team Canada, which is like five URM members from Canada. You know, they're all over the world and uh, they write a song in the style, record and mix it. And uh, however they want to, Figure out how to do that is up to them. Now, one of the things that I noticed in one of the first few rounds was that it sounded to me like the teams just just did whatever. Like they didn't didn't doesn't sound to me like they really sat there and were like, okay, this person is the best out of all of us at mixing. So this person should mix. This person is the sickest guitar player here he should be playing the rhythms. Like, it d didn't sound to me like they really took that approach of everybody playing to everybody's strengths. And so a lot of weaknesses were uh, displayed. Yeah. And the thing is, I completely agree with you. Surround yourself with people who are better than you at, certain, at what you're weak at. Not so that you can uh, hide but so that you can get better. Yeah, totally. Also, so that what you're working on there can sound as good as possible. But rhythm playing used to be one of my weaknesses. And it was always, I thought, the hardest thing about guitar. I always thought it was harder than lead. Oh, having a sense of rhythm is so much harder because... So much harder. You can't teach a sense of rhythm. Like, it's something that has to be instinctually in you. Like, yeah, you can drill scales for days and come out a fast guitar player. Yeah, you have to learn how to feel th certain things. But through getting with certain musicians who did have great feel um, and great rhythm chops, I got a lot better. I still I still wasn't really the dude on the records that played the rhythms just because the other dude was way better than me. But just as a result of having played with him and with some other people who were so damn good at it, I got way, way better. Way, 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 way better. That's the other thing, too, where it's like, I'm not saying, like, pick your friend group out of fucking, you know, like, oh, I fucking hate this person, but damn, they can play guitar. You know, uh, I'm saying, like, if you really, really want to do music, you and your friends should probably just be making music for fun with no real, like, expectation of, of much, you know? Like, that's, that's how all, the, like, the best musicians I know are. I mean, now nowadays it's more like whenever I make music with someone, it could potentially be something because I have places to put it. It's also just something you do for fun. Like you and your friends hanging out, if you take this really serious, should be you and your friends writing a song together, like making a beat together, making a, a metal, whatever it is you want to make, like whatever genre it is you all want to make, be there together and like work on that, sit there and work on that shit together. Be like, let's do this for fun. It doesn't have to be for anything, but let's just make make a song. And that's us hanging out. Hanging out isn't, you know, let's go to let's go to a 
I mean, you still got to socialize and do all the other stuff because networking is extremely important. But if if you can make music your life in in terms of it's what you're doing for fun and it's just like what you're doing when you hang out, then you're going to see quick growth, like real quick growth because you're working on music all the time. And some people, I've been, I've been kind of interested in like people's process recently. Uh, thinking about kind of the differences when we're going to do this between what I've learned from working with rap producers and like, you know, hip hop producers, pop producers and uh, metal bands and stuff like that. And one thing I noticed that I think uh, hip hop has an interesting, I don't know if I want to call it advantage in, but it almost seems that way is the creative process never stops. What do you mean by that? I mean, like with bands and stuff like that, a lot of times they will write in chunks of time. There'll be a four or five, six month period. And that's when they write their album. And then they take a year before they start writing again. Oh yeah, they they just stop writing. Yeah, they just stop writing. That does not happen. It's like you are trying to make new stuff every day, all the time, constantly, because the wheels keep moving, you know, like, because you got to that's that's something that's freeing about it too, because it's like, okay, cool, well, this album came out, I worked on this album, but now it's time to try and make new stuff for new people, you know, and keep that going. So I think that uh, a lot of times with bands, that some of the best bands I know are people who are in constant states of creativity. I agree. But I know not everyone's like that. Like I wouldn't expect uh, maybe Tool, for example, to to constantly be writing tool music. I guess some things are probably for chunks of time and moments of inspiration specifically, but that doesn't mean you can't be working on other stuff and like constantly sharpening your skills, you know, whether say you're in a band and you're like, okay, well, we're writing our, our EP now. So now it's time to write. But uh, in the meantime, if that means you got to think ahead for the next release after you come out that EP and be like, Okay, cool. Why stop riffing? You know, like why? Why do you have to write in chunks of time? Like you should. This should be an everyday thing because if you don't make it an everyday thing, by the time you go back to it, you know, you're going to be in a totally different, different place. And I think sometimes that's how bands get uh, stinkers of albums. Is it's rust more than anything? Like they've taken, they've toured and stuff, but that's not the same thing. Like playing live isn't the. You may be learn mm-hmm. from the you learn from the live experience on what's working and what's not in a live setting but that's also can be a false realization because uh sometimes the most boring live songs can be the biggest song you have you know like we were saying with a band for knock loose or something like that i think that is a band that is writes music very specifically for a live environment similar with a lot of hardcore because you know, being from Goliath and stuff like that, that was a that was a pretty interesting uh, a, a realization I had that maybe some people in bands can can think of is um, I was writing music for for my band specifically for a live environment because we wanted to be that super moshy band that pushes like the boundaries on being heavy and like having a really crazy live show. So I wrote songs for that, and that's a different mindset than writing songs that are you know, just going to be listened to. And necessarily, I'm not trying to make people move like that, you know? And I think that if you can muster the mentality of kind of getting both down, where you can write a song that's exciting to play live and a song that's exciting to uh, to listen to, then, you know, you get a nice middle ground. But there's differences, you know? You write certain things in the live, and like you might write a circle pit part because 
that's going to be sick live. But that doesn't always necessarily mean it's going to be the best thing for the listening to the song. Or I might write a whole song that's just all mosh parts, like two-step, breakdown, stomp, you know, like glass beat part, all that stuff. All parts dedicated to make people move in specific ways to specific beats and like drum beats and stuff like and riffs. Uh, but because I, I, I had a band that was kind of dedicated to that mindset and I wrote in that mindset for a long time, when I got out of that mindset, I can kind of pinch back into it, you know? That's, the, I think, one of the main differences between hardcore and, and metal is that uh, metal doesn't have the amount of dancing going on, you know, like different dance moves mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Whether it's silly <laughs> or not, it's like, it's a reality. It's true. And you can't hate on a band like Knock Loose and being as big as they are, but they write music for that purpose. And that is partially why they're so successful because they're so fun to go see because they're so good at that. Well, again, I mean, they're, there's a vision behind that. And whether the vision is some grand artistic thing like like Muse or something, or whether the vision is we're just going to make people hardcore dance and hit each other. Like there's still a vision. And everything you just said was, even if you're writing a song that's specifically just for live to make people go nuts, that's still a vision. Like there's yeah. that's not just random shit. That's a very specific vision. That you have the vision and then you execute. Yeah, totally. It's just, again, pulling from a larger well of things that you know work and don't work in, in your own music. When using other genres, sometimes it's about understanding not just uh, the type of music they're playing, but like the culture around the genre, you know, where you can apply stuff from the culture, not just the, uh, the, the way the music sounds. So let's talk about your process for a second. We haven't talked about process at all. And you started to talk about, you started to say that that's something that started to interest you but maybe you could tell us a little bit about about your process is it the same if you're writing something heavy versus hip-hop or like you get in the room with jonathan davis is the process different than if you're in the room with sid wilson or if you're in the room with winds of plague or juice world like what's i mean it depends what i'm working on like whether it's like okay i'm sitting down to write music for this specifically or it's i'm just making something because I want to make something, you know, and nine times out of 10, I try and not overthink it. Like I try and sit down and just pick up a guitar or put like, pull up like a synth or start with like program a drum beat, whatever, you know, whatever sounds cool to me. And I kind of honestly stumble into idea after idea. I've never really been the kind of uh, person who hears a melody in my head and here's a whole thing in my head, and I just basically regurgitate it out in that exact way. A lot of my music is uh, just taste. Like, it's just, this sounds cool. All right, I'm going to go to the next thing. This sounds cool. All right, I'm going to add that. You know, and I just keep that going. So say I'm writing for a band, or say uh, say me and, me and Sid are working on a beat or whatever. I'll just sit there, just lay down ideas I think are cool, and just try and express how I'm feeling, like, emotionally or however whatever is inside me, like whatever kind of vibe I want to go for. And eventually I'll be like, ooh, that sounds cool. I, I go with that. I just go with what sounds cool to me first. And I try not to overthink it too much. So if I'm writing a song for like Falling in Reverse or like I'm writing with whoever, Crown, whoever, uh, any of my friends, I'll just be like, all right, cool. Let's just start with, you know, first idea. If the first idea is good, you got to have that first idea be good because you're building the whole thing off the first idea. So I think a lot of people get scared, like, oh, where do I start? And they overthink the fuck out of it. But sometimes you just got to trust your taste, you know, and trust your 
if just it sounds, start. Yeah, just start. If it sounds cool, if one idea sounds cool, great. Move on to what you're adding on to the next thing to that. And that's kind of the thing that remains consistent for me throughout all of it. Yeah. When I'm writing a metal song, obviously I'm like, okay, like I'm going to make this sound like a band. It's not a different mindset. It's the same mindset. It's something that worked for me. Tell me if you do this. I feel like with writing, there's as much of a warm-up process as there is with playing. Like, you know how like when you're playing guitar, there comes a point where, you know that level of warmed-upness where you've been playing on stage like three shows, three songs in and you're just warm? Yeah, you're just like perfect, yeah, in that spot. You're good, yeah. I feel like with writing too, there's just a point where the light bulb turns on. And so sometimes I would start writing, not overthinking and get like a riff done. It's like kind of cool. Then the next riff. And then that third riff is where shit really happens. And it's like the first riff that that I'm like, yeah, okay, fuck yeah. And then basically it delete everything up to that point and be like, all right, this is the starting point. Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, knowing when to start over and when to reimagine what you got going already is definitely something you should you should be mindful of. Like if something's not really going the way you want it to exactly and maybe you have some ideas in there you're stoked on and some other ideas that, you know, you have mixed feelings about or something like that, sometimes you just have to hit the mute button on some things and just start with what you're liking. If that third riff is is dope and then say you write the fourth riff after that and that is equally as dope and you're then you're wishy-washy about the the two riffs before it. Maybe delete those two riffs and uh, you know, and try and think of the song in a different place that is more in line with the the cooler ideas that you feel like you have. And there's nothing wrong with with starting over. You know, there's nothing wrong with revisioning stuff. Honestly, hitting mute on a lot of times is the biggest strength you can have. Is not trying to to force something to fit. You know, sometimes it just doesn't, and sometimes it's just better to be like, this isn't working. Uh, I'm not going to lie to myself. And sometimes I feel like people will leave stuff in because they've spent so much time on it and they feel like the time equals goodness, you know, or like, I can't mute this now. I've spent three hours on it. Like how the, like. I think it's called the time sunk fallacy. Oh, okay. Like because uh, the sunk time fallacy, because yeah, because you spent so much time on it, then there's some value to it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's bullshit. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I honestly, same thing. Like I try, it's kind of funny because I really admire uh, minimalist producers, even though I myself am not super minimalist. Rick Rubin's probably my favorite producer and he's very key on minimalism, but I really, because it's so much harder to just have a couple ideas that sound good together than making these large stacks of like, crazy stuff, you know, that kind of gel together and make some wild sounding thing. But you're kind of just relying on the on the intricacies of it. You're not really, it's not really a strong idea. We were talking about Billie Eilish. That's a great example. Her brother Phineas is a fucking god at uh, minimalism. Like that song Bad Guy or whatever. It's like a bass line. It's one bass line and like a four on the four click drum. And he mm-hmm. was able to know this is enough. And sometimes that's the answer is dynamics dynamics, dynamics. You got to take away to add. Because when you take stuff away, those moments when uh, everything drops and you have the full realization of what you did. And usually I start with that. I usually start with the the big the big moment. You know, I'll, I'll write like the hook or like the breakdown or whatever part in the song is a part that is a, 
a big moment. And then I'll usually take ideas from that that are like, sometimes it's a layer in the moment. Sometimes it's like you do a lead guitar or something like that, or some ambient guitar vibe in the background or synth, whatever it is. And then sometimes it means, okay, cool. Like this is the drop. This is a big moment in the song. The next moment is going to be a stripped down version of the big moment, but I'm only going to, I'm going to use an element from the big moment. So it's still familiar, you know, but it's a more chilled version of it. So I think it's like getting the most out of your ideas, you know, really how many bands are there where you hear them play like a riff section or something like that, or a part in a song where like, God, that's so sick. Like, why does that only happen for four bars one time, Mm -hmm. you know, or like, or why didn't they just like take this idea and just run with it? I think bands who do do that, like, like walk is a perfect example, you know, from Pantera, Mm -hmm. that one riff could have just been a breakdown. Like it could have just been a bridge or something like that. But they knew like, this is the fucking shit. So we're going to make this the whole song. Like, and sometimes that's the answer is that one idea, if it's a strong idea, milk it for as much as you can really install in people's heads that like, when they're listening to your song that like, this is the moment, you know, and the song is revolving around that. You got to know when that moment is. I'm curious how you would know, because I would always know. It's hard to explain because it was never about like being correct or you can't ever like say this is sick because it's at this tempo or in this key or that harmony works. It's not like that. It's like no. when you get one of those moments, it's like... It's a feeling. It's a feeling. Yeah, you know it. And you know it. It's hard to explain because you know it when you got it, but you have to learn how to spot those. How do you know? Well, I think I have varying degrees of it. You know, I don't think it's like either cold or aha. I think it's... uh Sometimes it's where it's just so obvious that it's like, I can bring any, anyone, any of my friends in my room, like, check this part out, you know? And like, every time I show someone and everyone reacts the same way, that's a, that's a good indication uh, to know that it goes outside of yourself. But sometimes when it's in myself, it's just like, when I just can play that moment over and over and I'm just not getting sick of it. And I listen to the, the rest of the song and I'm, sometimes I'm whatever on like the rest of the song, or sometimes it's just not as sick as that moment. And every song is going to be like that. Every song, you're going to like parts from the song more than other parts from the song. So I think that when you, when you know the moment, it's one of those things you can't teach taste. You can't teach... Uh, you can, there's certain things you can't teach. And sometimes instinct is something that you just have to know what's within you. You just have to know your taste. If you love whatever kind of music you're making and you realize that you've written a cool part in that style, that's your moment. Like when it's the... Sh- the shining part of the song, like when it obviously stands out to you. And sometimes it's not going to be the same for every person. Like mm-hmm. some to some people, the moment in the song that you think is the weakest moment in the song is going to be what they think is the moment. It's not universal and no one's right. That's the whole, the whole thing about it is that music is subjective and it's so subjective to the point where some people are going to agree on something like that. Some people aren't going to agree on something like that. But you just have to go with what you trust. Now, you can't just like blindly, you know, just be like, oh, my way or the highway. You know, you got to be aware. Say I'm writing for a band or something like that. I'd be sometimes I've written songs where I'm like, I would never listen to this on my own time. But I already know like this is the moment for their fans. 
And this is going to be like the moment in this song because it's in line. It's their vibe. Mm -hmm. I try and see the moments from a outside perspective other than my own. Like I'll think, is this just a moment to me? I have some things where everyone does where they have weird tastes and stuff that aren't necessarily super popular or like things like that. Or I'll be like, this is my moment. Like this is a music, this is a part for me that I really like. Or I'll be like, this is a moment that I could see being more universal. You know, I think it's sick. And I think a lot of other people are going to think it's sick. So I kind of try and think about it from two points of view, my point of view and my understanding of what I think other people might think too. It's an interesting topic though, because, uh, because you need those moments, but you really need to know how to spot them. But I think it really does come down to cultivating your tastes. Yeah, true. Because a lot of times people, if, if someone asks me that, I'd be like, play the song. I can tell you what the moment is the first time I hear it. Like, I'll know what the moment is, like, instantly. Because, and I feel like most people will. Like, most people, if they like the song, you know, show your friends. Like, don't be afraid to get an outside opinion on what you're working on. If you're, if you're writing a song for your band or you're like working on another band's project, you know, or whatever, don't be afraid to be like, we're working on this song and I think this part is the part. I think this needs to be the chorus or this needs to be, you know, have a have its, a moment in the song that's like really its own. Let's see what they think, you know? Maybe if they listen through it, they'll be like, no, you, like it's cool, but really like that bridge is really exciting. That should be the chorus, you know, like, Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to get outside opinions and don't be afraid to rethink structure. Sometimes what you think is the verse is the hook. Is can be the hook. You know, sometimes what you think the is the intro could be the chorus. How much of your material gets scrapped? I try and see ideas all the way through to at least a basic form. So actually a kind of small percentage does because the thing that I've learned from uh doing hip hop production is that is sometimes things that I don't think are super sick are going to win over the rapper, you know, or the the singer. Um, Mm -hmm. And I try and see those ideas at least through to a basic form. Like if I have, say, some melody, I'm like, it's whatever. I'll throw some drums on it and I'll I'll throw a bass line on it and I'll, I'll bounce it out. And so I have it. So maybe if I'm in a situation with an artist and I'm thinking I'm playing them stuff and they're just not feeling it, you know, they're just like, yeah, play the next one, play the next one. And I'm like, oh, what are they looking for? And sometimes it's been a lot of times I'm like, oh, there's that one idea I did that's super simple that I was kind of whatever on, but it seems like he's looking for a, a super simple idea. So fuck it, I'll play that. Play that instantly. Then like everyone in the studio or whatever like is like, oh shit, like that's crazy, you know? So um, I try and recognize that from a producer standpoint, it's not always about my taste. It's about what's going to land the gig and what's going to get me in the room and get the people in the room excited. And sometimes that means it's something that I was particular lukewarm on, but I have it. I still have the idea in my arsenal just in case. So I usually try and, uh, I mean, there are times where I'm like, just not at all. And I had to have nowhere to go with it. I'm like, fuck it. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. So you do recognize when it's a dead end. Yeah. I don't spend too much time on those things. I don't like exhaust myself to make it work unless I really, really like, am like, there's something here. I'm just not realizing it yet. I got to spend a little more time on it. And, I'm like, and then sometimes I'll end up on the other end of that. Uh, very happy that I didn't give up. 
But sometimes I'll just be like, eh, I'm just going to kind of put together what I know how to do. Like I, I feel confident now to the point where something that is maybe my weakest idea still might be kind of strong. So how do you know when something's a dead end? Just when like, I just can't get it to a point of even knowing what comes next. Like if I can't get something to where I'm having any ideas about, say I'm working on like, like a melody or something like that. And I'm just like, I don't even know what drum beat I want over this. I don't know what kind of bass line I want over this. I don't know what, like anything. But sometimes if I like, I lay it down and I'm just like, it's all right. One thing I really like to do, and I think a, a lot of engineers would probably like have a lot of fun with this when it comes to production, when you can really pull your engineering card in, in this world, specifically making pop, hip hop, stuff like that. But even metal, it applies because they're, it's really just the sounds you're using that's different. It's not really the you know mentality. But uh, I'll take a melody I write on guitar. Say I write some plain, you know, eight bar, like simple, basic riff, and I'll just warp it and like mutate it to a point where it sounds nothing like the original idea. What do you mean by warp it? What I mean by is like basically add a lot of like effects, you know, chop stuff up. Okay, so just like manipulate it. Manipulate it exactly. Yeah. Sometimes there's great ideas in something that you can't see just yet. And when you can use your skills with like, you know, being URM, you can use your skills that you've learned here. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes you got to be unconventional and try weird shit. Like I like a lot of the output stuff, you know, like portal movement, like those kind of effects based plugins. You know, there's stuff like by like cable guys called halftime is something I use all the time. There's stuff by Gross Beat, which is in Fruity Loops, which I'll bounce melodies out into Fruity Loops and put this Gross Beat thing, which is also an effects-based plugin that like warps melody ideas and stuff. So there's so much of that out nowadays that you can take a really basic, uh, simple idea and just go crazy with it and end up on the other end with some wild fucking thing that you would have never been able to do. And I have a lot of fun doing that. So sometimes I try and get the most out of ideas even when I'm not super inspired by them if I if I drive them to a point where even when I do all that kind of shit and go hard at uh manipulating um that's when usually I'm like all right cool if I can't make the sound to where I want it and I kind of pride myself on being able to take an idea I'm not stoked on and to turn it into an idea I love by that process like I think that's a strength of mine too that's kind of something I would say is that uh you know don't always take things at face value. Sometimes you need to reimagine them in a different context. And yeah. sometimes that different context will make night and day difference. When you're getting in a room with someone else, like John Davis or whoever, yeah, yeah. doesn't have to be him, but just somebody else that you're collabing with, it's your first time, is like, what's going on? Like, are you collabing in person? Are you doing it over the internet? Like, are you... Do you have a guitar and a metronome? Like, how does the session look? With John, it's not never over the internet. It's always been in person so far. But basically, it's just, I kind of just sit down and just start doing what I do, how I always do it. Like, I just sit down and just start the idea. Don't let the fact that, you know, my fucking, an idol, like an idol of mine is standing next to me, like, fuck with me too much. Like, I get that it's a high pressure, like it's it's not a high, you don't have to make it a high pressure pressure situation to where it cripples you. So like, only as high pressure as you let it be. Yeah, it's like, he's not sitting there like down your throat, like overanalyzing everything you do. Like I'm a fucking, you know, God, I know what's right. No, that's that sucks, that sucks. That, it's not like that. 
I'll sit there and just kind of come up with an idea and just keep do what I do, just roll through it. Like, this is a cool riff. All right, dope. I'm going to lay the bass line down. And then I'm like, oh, this is cool. Or it's not cool. And I'll just like different bass line, you know? I just go with my instincts, basically. I, I try not to let it affect me too much. And sometimes it's like with a, a collaborative process. A lot of times with John, it's been, I bring like some of my friends with me, you know, to work on like, uh, work on music with like him and his son and stuff like to where it's like, all right, cool. Like I'll start an idea. And this is the beauty of collaborating is sometimes when you hit that dead end, the other person is just ramping up. So you can Mm -hmm. leave an idea in a basic form. It's like band, like, you know, where if you can be a one man band and yourself and you're capable of thinking like a drummer, thinking like a bass player, keyboard player, guitar player and stuff, your limits are, are few and far between. So I'll be like, okay, so I'm going to work on this idea and I'm going to leave it at this point and you come and help like jump in on this next part. Like we, me and Jonathan were making this one beat uh, this one time and I was like, hey, like what would you do on hi-hats? Like he's super sick at drums and he's super sick at guitar, which a lot of people don't know. But Jonathan has written a lot of stuff for Korn, a lot of the riffs, a lot of the, the drum patterns and stuff. You know, he's a, he's a, a, a member of the band, like, in terms of the music as, as much as he is the vocals. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was like, what would you do on hi-hats? Like, you know, do you want to lay down hi-hats for this? Because I know he has that funk background. He's a really good drummer. So, you know, he laid his, his hi-hat pattern down and he's excited about it. And I was excited about it because it's not what I would have done. Sometimes there's beauty in the, you know, the mixing of ideas. So with someone like that, it's just kind of like, let's just have fun and make a song. You know, there's no real super, we don't have to make this super pressure. Phil, like with Sid too, like Sid's strength is in his sound design and his uh, ability to hear shit that's like most people just couldn't hear in it. So I'll try and get an idea to a certain point where I think that, you know, he'll be able to take it from that point to a place I couldn't see. So that's kind of trusting your collaborators too, you know, and specifically when you're in collaborations scenarios. And how quick do these scenarios happen? Is this just like idea, idea, boom, 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 boom. Or like when someone's like, hey, try this. Do you often have to interpret their ideas and then get it into the computer? Or do they then, you know, pick up the instrument? Or how does that work? Yeah, well, a lot of times, uh, sometimes it's a mix of both. You know, sometimes it's, uh, hey, uh, here's a guitar. You want to try an idea? And, you know, then let them lay down their idea over what you got going on already. Or sometimes it's even like, uh, let me just give you stems for what I got right now, and you put it into your uh, your program and fuck with it, you know, the best way you know how because that program is your strength. So um, yeah, it's sometimes you know you run in circles sometimes where it's like takes a while till you get to a, a point where both people are like, all right, this is done. Sometimes you're not really mm-hmm. satisfied when you say this is done, but you can't work on an idea forever, like. Because you're just going to drive yourself crazy. Sometimes there has to be a point where you go, you got to accept the fact that, okay, this isn't all the way what I want it to be, but I'm at a point where like, I can't really do too much more to this because I don't know what to do. And when you're like, kind of in like a, I have no idea what to do point, then it's, it's done, you know, like move, move on to the next idea. And if it's not initially the idea you wanted, then you got to just fucking uh, try the next thing out. Do you ever go back? Oh, yeah, all the time. Revisiting things can be great. Sometimes you just got to step away from something from a while, like spend two days, three days away from it, and then revisit it. And then just because sometimes it's a lot funner, I think, to um, to work from a place that's where near completion than 
starting out like on your blank page. Because when you're like near completion, then you can start to do all the stuff that you might have been a little too burnt out to do uh, yep. when you were on your you know your first pass. Like for me, like then I'll I'll start to really get in and start to add like all the little effects and bells and whistles and like start to because I'm fresh, you know. Like this is what I'm starting out with now from a point of completion, like close near completion versus the blank page. Which the blank page is if you can get the blank page to a point where you're you're like, all right, this is pretty cool. I'm gonna sit on this and then come back in a couple of days and. Then a lot of times those those ideas can be be your best ones because you're taking a break, maybe try a different idea. You know, just don't be afraid to revisit stuff. Sometimes your older ideas can be even stuff you've worked. I constantly will find stuff from years ago that I wrote. That was my next question. Was like, how far back does this go? Oh yeah, I'll I'll go all the I'll go as far back as I have. To some people, the Goliath like Lost Cause era stuff is the best music I've ever written, and some to some people think that. And I'm not saying they're wrong. Like I don't think that, but I understand that sentiment. So I'm really not afraid to go back and take an idea I had from all the way back then because I know I was in a different place musically, and there were probably things about that musical place I was in when I was a lot younger. What that are cool, you know, that maybe I, I haven't, that I've kind of lost a little bit through over the years. So I really don't think that um, there's anything wrong or like, as long as you're in a place musically that you're like confident in yourself, which I feel like I, I was in that place then, so I have no problem. I love going back and revisiting ideas like that, like from a long time ago, because then I can take everything I've learned from that point and add it to it. And then cool, you have a, you know, you have something that, you know, expands a chunk of your your time as like a creative. So do you basically have several hard drives full of this stuff or are they in the cloud or where where does this all live? I've been decent about, uh, you know, like just transferring hard drive, backup hard drive, backup hard drive. So if I don't, if I can't come up with any ideas or anything like that, um, a lot of times what I'll do is that's when I start looking through all material is sometimes I start from that point. Like I'll... I'll be like, oh, I'll make uh like what I do a lot is this is how I make uh for any inspiring guitar players who want to know where their future in guitar is and like people who are like, oh, uh, who have the mentality that like, guitar music is dead. Right now is one of the best times to be a guitar player because everyone in the pop and like hip hop world wants guitar based music. So I'll make full guitar ideas and I'll make a pack of them. I'll make a whole folder full of them. Like and I'll make a whole song or like verse chorus idea add the layers, everything, basically make a song without bass and drums. Uh, and I'll save them like all in these folders. And I'll, these are the folders I give to other producers. Like say I like I want to work with that artist. So I'm going to hit this producer up and be like, let me send you some riff ideas and you can collaborate on them. So I'll then, you know, maybe they'll play it for a set artist. And, but I have these, so I have these things that are idea starters, basically, that I can just go, and eh, I don't really feel like making a riff right now. Like, let me just go back to that time when I wrote that, when I did feel like making a riff, and I just go through those ideas. I'm like, oh, that's sick. I'm going to start from there. So I kind of will do that. And sometimes it'll mean going to old songs that um, never came out or whatever, you know, and I'll just take a chunk of whatever I'm fucking with in that song and that I feel inspired by by the moment, and I'll repurpose it in uh, whatever I'm doing now just to just to get the ball rolling. So writer's block doesn't seem to be much of an issue for you because if you are feeling it, you have this, basically this uh, treasure trove of old material that you can repurpose and get started from. Like you've got plenty of material to 
spark ideas from? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's definitely times when I don't feel like writing, but I can't say that I'm super crippled by writer's block because of that. Doesn't sound like it. Yeah, because, I mean, because you don't always have writer's block. And when you don't have writer's block, if you can take advantage of that and you know, pump out as much, pump out what you can while you can. And then sometimes it's as easy as uh, just going back and listening and be like, oh, this is sick. Like, and then that's going to give you an idea because I'll be like, this is sick. I can already hear like what I'd want to do on drums for it. Like the drums I'd want to program on this. So then I just pull in the idea and I just go start from there. Then that drum beat, you know, well, again, just trust your taste, just fall into one good idea after the other, the best you can. Having a little trove of um, of past ideas definitely works for that would be my number one thing I would say for people with writer's block and I get these packs too like I'm telling you from other people too like I get have my friends send me ideas I'm like or random kids too like if you're someone who like wants to collaborate with me I'm pretty open people will hit me up and be like yo I play guitar and I'm like sick man like send me some riffs if I like it I'll, I'll work on it if I don't you know I won't mm-hmm. a lot of times that's kind of where I start from it's not just my ideas I'll start from another person's ideas because sometimes they'll do something where I'm like yo this is sick like I would have never played this then I'm at a point where I'm like oh sick and then I'm just adding on to what what I already think is sick yeah so basically when you are feeling inspired ride that ride it till the wheels fall off, basically. Even if you're only supposed to write one or two songs, if you have five or six or seven in you, write them. And even if you have, you know, 10 partial ideas, write them. And that's what saves your ass. Yeah, that's going to save your ass later, for sure. And you never know when or where those are going to come into play. Like, even if you're on the producing end of things and you're working with your band or your artist or whoever, and they're kind of like, Let's start a song so you're not all the way under pressure to grab the guitar or whatever your uh, your instrument is and, you know, perform right there. Sometimes you can be like, oh, well, I have like a bunch of ideas that, you know, I already have and I can just run through. And then it gives people a lot of times fluid quickness is is what gets the job done. You know, you don't mm-hmm. want too much like dead space in the in the creativity and too much like downtime where people are getting bored and like, you know, you're sitting there working forever on this one thing that the other person doesn't all the way feel, you know, and they maybe they're like, oh, why is this like taking so long? Why are you spending so much time on this? When you can just kind of be like, press play, nah, press play, nah, press play. Oh, that's, that's sick. Let's start from there, you know? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's actually what saved my ass lots of times too, is just having so much material. Yeah. And you can always like, say you have like a demo or something that you're, uh, yeah, if you have a demo that you've never, never came out, or even if it has come out, whatever, say you have like a bridge or something in that demo that you're like, this bridge from the demo six, like, I'm just going to take this demo and, and uh, take the part out of it I like and repurpose it. Like, it doesn't always have to be in its final form, you know? And don't be afraid to manipulate ideas you already have. Sometimes it, it doesn't mean uh, you hear the idea and you have to keep it exactly the same. Sometimes it's like, it's like, oh, that's sick. It could be sick if it was in a if I pitch it, you know, to a different key, or that could be sick if I uh, take the first half of it and you know uh, maybe write something different for the second half. As long as you're just getting the ball rolling, like as long as that blank page isn't so intimidating anymore. Like you're not when you're not starting from the the blank page, it's a lot of times much uh, 
I mean, sometimes though, starting from the blank page is the best thing you can do, but you got to do that when, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm up to it. Like I'm, I'm ready to start from the blank page. And just because you're not ready doesn't mean you shouldn't be creating. Do you have a writing template kind of like, yeah. what kind of stuff is in it? My writing template is usually like, I have, uh, I have like some of my basic, like some of my favorite drum sounds and stuff like that already loaded into it. I basically try and get it to a point where I can just start creating and have minimal shit to do that I always do for most of my stuff. Like I have, like when I make beats and stuff like that, I master while I while I make it. So I already have a master chain on it, you know. So I already do stuff like that, and I um, do things like, okay, cool. I like this plugin. Like I like Sausage Fattener on my uh, 808s, you know, or something like that. So I'll have that already stuff like that already set up to where I already know certain things that are going to be. Nine times out of ten, I lean towards that way. And sometimes I, I don't. and I, I mute shit on my template, but at least I'm starting from a point where I don't have to load up all these plugins like every single time, you know, because I have my taste and stuff that I already like. So yeah, stuff like that. You know, I just try and get it to a point where uh, it's easy for me just to go in and just kind of start flushing ideas out and it already sounds good. That makes perfect sense. Same with bands. I have the, the same thing. I literally use the same template. Like it's not really a different mentality for me. I just kind of made a template that I could go either way with it. Like I could either make this more of a band vibe or I can make this more of a production vibe. The point is you're you're not fucking around setting up a session. You just load it up and you can get to work. Yeah, same with like a vocal like a vocal template and stuff like that. It's really important. You know, like if you're an engineer, you want to just be able to open up your session. And like, if you're about to record a singer or like a, a whatever uh, is going on that you're working on, you can just, it already sounds pretty good. Like you're already to a point where, you know, you're 50% done with the mix. Obviously every project has its own thing, and, but there are general things you can do to make, some, make it easy for the artist to record and for it to sound good to them already. So they can get the best performance out of themselves and you're not sitting there for an hour and a half, you know, Bussing uh, shit to your reverb channel and like mm-hmm. experimenting with what reverb to use and shit. Just get a good sound going, and then uh, you know worry about that like the specific things like that after when you're gonna mix. That sounds wise and efficient as well. Artists can be really impatient. Impatient, yeah. There you go. Impatient. Perfect. They don't want to sit there for hours listening to you set up a vocal mix for you to track. Them. No, dude, and I I can tell you even. When I would tell people, like, for instance, you know, well, okay, so it was a little different in your case because the drums were already set up. Yeah, that was nice. Um, because, yeah, that was, a, that was kind of a weird situation. But, you know, drums can take me like three or four days sometimes to get the tones. If we've got the budget and the time, I'm going to take the time. And uh, I would always tell bands this in advance like we're not going to re- record any drums the first day maybe not even the second day so just just relax yeah. like that's how it's going to be but usually halfway through the first day we'll get the drummer like pacing like when are we going to when are we going to do this when are we going to do this yep it's like yeah i understand but not yet yeah totally but yeah artists are impatient and uh i never quite figured out a way to get around it it's tough especially in the case of of working with like a live band and you're going for like, like what we did where we like did real drums and did all that kind of stuff. Um, that takes time. That takes time. And like, you need to know what you're getting yourself into when getting into the project. That's why like the specifics of it are important is like, okay, like 
what do you guys want to do? Are we doing real drums here? Or are we doing, are you cool with program drums? Like, what sort of vibe do you want your band to have? Like, and then, you know, going into it, you can be specific and be like, well, if we're doing real drums, you know, this is a time consuming thing because we're starting from scratch on a, on a, a, something that's complicated. Mm -hmm. So, um, that was one of those things too that I find uh, that I have a lot of fun with in terms of production versus writing band songs because for rock or metal is uh, with rock and metal songs a lot more. Go- it's harder to do. I'm not gonna lie, it's a lot harder to do, and there's uh, more walls around it. With with production, I can just like take basic idea and just morph it till it sounds cool. It hasn't doesn't matter if it can be replicated live. Doesn't matter what sort of set. You know what sort of uh, genre or whatever it fills in. You just kind of throw ideas together, and you can knock something out in like twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. It's done as soon as as soon as you bounce that out. That's the mix. You're done. And a lot of times with uh, with the hip hop world, which I find is, is super interesting, and which there are some certain things I kind of credit partially to its efficiency and popularity and its efficiency and output is um, a lot of times people are just mixing vocals to two track productions that the producer has already bounced out, you know? So as soon as you finish your idea, which sometimes it can be quick, like sometimes you can just lay like, like a key line out quick. You're like, I got it. And then you just program the drums to it quick, you know, you, and then lay the bass line quick and then throw a structure together and it's done. You bounce it. That's the instrumental mix. And then you get the vocalist on it. And a lot of times that stuff is just like, boom, 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 like super quick. But then the output of that, you can do like that 10 times over and come out with a lot of shit. But that's kind of a genre thing. Yeah, It works too, because I do that with the, the trap metal stuff. Like sometimes it's just taking one or two small ideas and don't, when you're done, don't be afraid to say you're done. Like if you, if you have something where you're like, this is sick and I already like it. Sometimes that means... Uh, yeah, sometimes that means that you know that's where all you have to leave it at. You don't have to time, like we said, time doesn't equal equal good. No, it certainly doesn't. And you'd be amazed at how many uh, how many songs you hear in popular music that people just it just flew out of them quickly, you know. And it doesn't mean that it's any less good or anything like that. And same with that's how those things like those melody packs and stuff like that come in handy is because you can flush ideas out quickly. It's, it's kind of funny that so much of what you hear on the radio and or like whatever popular, who listens to the radio now, right? Like who uh, popular playlists and shit are things that producers from America get melodies from these like European kids in um, Sweden, Germany, stuff like that, who are really good at uh, creating melodies. And they do those packs, give them to producers. And then those producers make the the drums out of it and stuff. And then boom, you hear those kids' melodies all on the radio all day. And it's like a thing now. So if your thing is, you know, you're good at melodies or you're good at riffs or keys or whatever, and and that's your strength, do a bunch of those ideas. And then the situation might come up where you're going to need those. You know, it doesn't mean you have to like do it every time, but say you're like working on a project in in a band scenario and you've already made like, you know, a bunch of keyboard loops or a bunch of guitar loops and the band comes in and it's one of those situations where it's really collaborative and the band wants you to to work with them on a uh, a more like you're a member kind of thing like we're writing together then you can just be like oh hey like I have all these ideas here like let's start with this and then sometimes you you know one of those ideas will make the best song they have because you're they get excited you know and you you can have something to show them right away how does someone get paid for the melody packs 
some people sell theirs, you know, some people do that kind of route where if that's what you want to do and you just kind of want to make some money off it, like you just put it up online and yeah, like selling samples. Exactly. Yeah. You're basically selling it and you got to kind of give them the, the rights to it and all that cool, that type of stuff depends on the specifics. You know, you can also do it where you say like, if you use it, you get a percentage still, but usually it's this, this is when you get into more like the business aspect of it is that if someone uses your melody, like for, uh, I'll use myself for example. So for like juice world, uh, like I played guitar on the song "Won't Let Go." Um, me and Perps made the song together. I didn't give him a melody back. We we started uh, together in my room and like we wrote the riff. You know, I came up with that part of the song, and he did the drums and the the bass and everything. What happened from there was then I get a percentage of that song. So if you have this is for major label releases, but it doesn't have to be just for major label releases. Like say that you wrote on a band song, and you wrote the guitar line or you wrote whatever. Whatever role that plays in that song is how much of a percentage you're going to get out of 100%. So 50% Mm -hmm. goes to the vocals, 50% goes to the instruments or the instrumental side of it. And if you wrote the main melody in the instrumental side, say maybe you get like you and one other person wrote it. Say maybe you split 25% each, depending on all kinds of variables. But just make sure you get your percentage, you know, make sure that either if they don't buy you out for the for what you did at a price that you think is going to be worth it because you might get more from the upfront pay than you'll get from the royalties. You got to gauge it on how well you realistically think the project is going to do and how much revenue it's really going to make versus like if you think it's worth it to take the percentage and take less money up front. Be like, no, I'd rather take my 10 percent or whatever of the song because I wrote this part of the song or I wrote this part of the vocal, you know, whatever it is you did. Yeah. This is just something that you kind of learn to feel out. You'll learn the hard way. I've learned the hard way a few times, you know, like that's the other thing about the, the music business, especially when you start to really get into like the deeper ends of it where, you know, you're dealing with major labels and you're dealing with some real money behind it. Then you got to really, really watch your ass because people are going to try and screw you over like nine times out of 10 because they want their money. Those labels, their job is to keep as much money as they can. And that's one thing I will say that I do like about the, the metal and rock world in terms of being a producer from this world is you get uh, paid like upfront, quicker. You know, it's there's much more importance to your title, like a, like a Will Putney or like, like, you know, how you were, anything like that. You know, you're you're in it already, like going in, getting getting bread. But like with production, it's almost like a it's a maybe, you know, kind of thing where it's let's hope it gets placed. If it gets placed, mm-hmm. then you gotta like you gotta get a lawyer, you gotta do all kinds of shit. Like all kinds of shit that people aren't gonna find sexy. And I honestly am still going through tons of stuff where I'm like, all right, like I need to like loosen up these ends on like some of my splits and royalties and like getting money from uh, sound exchange and those kind of things that aren't the sexy stuff to talk about, you know, but it's important or else how are you going to make money on, on any of this shit that you're doing? You're not. You're not. So you and have no to, one's going to just hand it to you. Yeah. And they're going to try not to hand it to you. So that's why more recently when I was like, damn, I have to really get a, I have to get a lawyer. Like for real, I have to get a lawyer. Like I can't not have a lawyer in these sorts of conversations because you'll find yourself out of your league very quickly when you get that contract, when you get that like 14 page contract full of like legal jargon that you do not understand. That's when you have to, you know, start thinking of stuff like that. Yeah. Cause this big shot you're working with does have a lawyer. 
Yep. And they got a good lawyer. And they usually have people who are like, man, like we're not giving this fool this, this much percentage. Like he's working with this artist. He's lucky. They think you're lucky to be in that position, you know? And sometimes you are lucky enough to be in that position. I mean, to some degree, they're right. Yeah. Sometimes you have to know when to be like, all right, I'm going to take uh, take like a little bit less, you know, because I'm starting out. Mm-hmm. And I did that. Like, tons of, everyone's going to do that. Like, sometimes the the placement and the title is more important than the money you're going to get on the out, like the outcome of it, you know? That's a hard one to gauge, though. But yeah, I totally agree. I think that if if you always argue for the money, you're going to end up screwing up some relationships. You're going to get bitter. You know, you're going to get jaded. You're going to get all that type of stuff, which, you know, it's hard to not get any of those things in this in this industry, to be honest, like, because there are always going to be people trying to, to get the best of you. And you're probably going to get the best gotten of you, you know, at least a couple of times. Like the learning experiences are, that's how you got to, you got to learn how to reposition yourself. Like even like just now I'm like starting to, I've learned shit where I'm like, wait, like half my money I get from this, like from like stuff like sound exchange and shit that I had no idea about before. So I've just had like royalty money just like waiting in a place that no one told me about or anything like that. And then someone's like, yeah, you know, like this is where you get that money from. And then you got to go hunt that money down and shit, you know? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not always easy. No, but you're taking steps to get that all shored up. Half the battle is knowing it. The other half is knowing what to do when, when, when you figure it out. Yeah, you know, I know quite a few people who had really great opportunities and they decided to try to play hardball with people that were out of their league and they ruined these great opportunities. But the thing that sucks about it is basically the smart thing would have been for them to agree to get screwed. And uh, and that sucks. It does suck. It's like you had to be like, you had to understand that, okay, this is a, a battle which is part of a long war. And sometimes you have to concede this battle to stay in the war. Yes. And yeah, there are some times where you just got to let them win. As long as you get your credit, you know, as long as you at least like your name is on it and that anyone who questions that can look it up easily and tell that your name is on it, that's uh, sometimes going to be more valuable in the long run because you'll get bigger opportunities. You just don't want to get to a place where you're just collecting this large sum of credits with no uh, with no real sustainability or like no um, like you know income from it or anything like that. Like you gotta you gotta at least figure that out a little bit. The production world becomes really complicated for for something because like, then you start getting stuff like pub deal offers and you start getting stuff like um, people trying to pay you up front versus giving you the you know like we talked about before before besides giving you the points and shit like on records. You don't have to be a music business whiz, but you should at least know a little bit. Like at least it's worth watching a couple YouTube video tutorials on to figure out like what to do when something is released just to make sure that you get your credit and or like your percentage you guys agreed on. Yeah, I completely agree. Arm yourself with that knowledge. The thing is arm yourself with the knowledge, but at the same time, know when to step off the gas. Yeah. Don't be the person no one wants to work with. Yeah. Exactly. Like I remember this one time that uh, at my old studio, my ex-studio partner and I were going to do a spec deal with this local band from Atlanta. We really thought there was a lot of potential there. We were going to record two songs for free. And 
we, you know, spec deal. And they got like a student lawyer <laughs> to look over the contract and they marked up everything. They went, they were so aggressive that it just ended up not happening because we were like, man, this is such a pain in the ass. Like, fuck this. If this is what it's going to be like. Like, we're just trying to, we're trying to help this band out and uh, help get them signed and stuff. And we just want to make sure that if they get signed, we get to do the record, yep. <laughs> the end. And they're turning this into this major ordeal. Yeah, sometimes people learn a little bit yeah. of stuff and then they get real up their, their own their own butts about like, this has to be done the super, super official, like traditional way, you know, or else no go. And this has to be like, they start like, yeah, bargaining with chips they don't really have, you know? Yeah, well, then in that case, it really did turn into no-go. Yeah, and it's that's why, too, you have to be somewhat careful with who you collaborate with. And sometimes, like, I'm not even, like, cautious sometimes about what I play in front of, like, what people. Because sometimes if I've made something with someone who I've maybe had something in the past where, like, they've been difficult or they've been uh, not understanding of the situation, you know, and, like, being like, you know, like this, this person doesn't really have any money. We're not going to really make what we thought we were going to make initially. Stuff like that, you know, that will come up. I won't play it for certain people because I already know that if this lands, then I'm going to have to deal with this whole other thing. So fuck it. I'm going to play, yeah. beat. I'm going to play the beat I made with this other person that is just as good because, uh, because I'm not going to have to go through that, you know, with this person. Smart. So yeah. So, and then maybe if it's like a huge, like a bigger situation, I really believe in that beat or whatever. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I'll play this because I already know this situation will be much more official. And this person seems to be one of those people who's very, like, stern or, like, their lawyer is very, like, stern about certain shit. You got to be mindful about that kind of stuff. And you got to decide, too, especially it goes both ways, too, for people who are working with bands and shit. What are you going to take up front? If you write on the, the song, are you going to, like, establish something to where you're going to get your points on it? Or are you just doing, like, a basic upfront fee, you know? So there are that kind of shit. That's not like the sexy stuff to talk about, but. Well, I, I mean, I can tell you that with lots of smaller bands on smaller labels, oftentimes my manager and I would just forego the points because why sweat them? Why get adversarial with these people I'm about to work with over something that's going to amount to. Pennies. Yeah. A few hundred dollars, maybe. Yeah, totally. Like, for example, with when people are like, oh, I want to buy a beat from you or can I get a beat? Like, what do I got to do? You know, I'll gauge it on the situation. Like, I'll be like, OK, like I'm I'm down to like work with people who, who are starting out and stuff. But um, sometimes I'll be like, I'm just going to take the, the money because I'm going to ask for this amount of money. And if I were to go through the whole thing of having to get a contract worked out with splits and like I'm like, all right, how are you going to release this? You know, is it coming out through a label or is it coming out through yourself? All right, if it's coming out through yourself, all right, you got to go through like the distro kit thing and put splits in the distro kit and do my house cap, blah, blah, blah. And um, then sometimes it's worth it just to be like, make it simple and just make it upfront, you know, and just be like, cool, this is the charge. If, you, if this song does super well or blows up or something like that, you know, then maybe like we're going to revisit this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some, some points in the long run. So I usually don't like sign anything or whatever for that yeah. option to be open. Because that's usually part of like the agreement I'll, I'll have with people. But yeah, th that kind of stuff is important, you know, because when you find yourself in a position to where people are actually 
you're actually making some money off this stuff, you got to really like treat it like a business, you know, you got to, and you got to gauge the risks and versus the rewards. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michael, I think this is a good place to stop. We've been going for over three and a half hours. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Damn. So, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome talking to you and, uh, Sure, we should do this again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I had a blast. And yeah, anyone listening, thanks for listening. Feel free to hit me up if you have any questions or anything like that. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.